You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 460. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 5C at the Marriott in Philadelphia's Historic District. Today's show is recorded on the 10th of February, 2021. A retired aircraft technician is turning an old 737 into a camper trailer. A civilian air traffic controller saves an Air Force flight crew. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Flying the Red Flag Part 2. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 460 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City! All right, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot in a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining me today from her lakeside studio in South... She's a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Long time no see. Looking forward to a great show today. Yeah, me too. All right. Good to see you again. And also join us from his studio in the pastoral English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airlines. It's Captain Nick. Well, great to be uh, back on board, Jeff. Hi there, Steph. Uh, And to those uh, football supporters uh, amongst our listeners, go Chelsea or Liverpool or something like that. Yeah, go all those teams. Go team. Go team. Yeah, anything but Manchester. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. Feel a fight coming uh, on. Sounds like uh, you're picking a fight or something. So before it gets out of hand, let's do some news. Stand by for news. Let's start with an update, a preliminary report on the Swarjaya, uh, the Indonesian airline crash, um, Boeing 737-500 at Jakarta on the 9th of January, 2021. You'll remember it lost height and impacted the Java Sea. And so on the 10th of February, 2021, Indonesia's KNKT released their preliminary report. They reported at the time of issuing this preliminary report, the memory unit of the cockpit voice recorder has not been recovered and the search is continuing. So they're still looking for that darn thing. The uh, KNKT reported the sequence of events on board of the aircraft as known so far. 
let's see, on the 9th of January, a Boeing 737-500 aircraft registration PKCLC was being operated by uh, PT Swajaya Air on a scheduled passenger flight from uh, Sukarno Hatta International Airport, Jakarta, to Supadillo International Airport in Pontianak. Pontianak. I don't know. Any guesses? Uh, yeah, Pontiac, Michigan. This. No, Pontiac, that Alaska. Fine no, that's me. not right. Uh, the flight number was uh, SJY182. According to the flight plan filed, the fuel endurance was three hours and 50 minutes. At 736 uh, UTC, which is 1436 local time in daylight conditions, flight 182 departed runway 25 right of Jakarta. There were two pilots, four flight attendants, and 56 passengers on board the aircraft. At 1436.46 local time, the uh, 182 flight pilot contacted terminal east controller was instructed uh, I 18 flight 182 identified on departure via the standard instrument departure unrestricted climb level 290 the instrument uh, instruction was read back by the pilot at 1436.51 the flight data recorder recorded that or flight data recorder recorded that the autopilot system engaged in, at, at an altitude of 1980 feet was engaged, I guess. At 1438.42, the flight data recorder recorded that as the aircraft climbed past 8,150 feet, the thrust lever of the left engine started reducing, while the thrust lever position of the right engine remained in, you know, didn't move. The FDR also recorded the left engine N1 was decreasing, whereas the right engine N1 remained the same. At 1438.51, the Flight 182 pilot requested to the Terminal East controller for a heading change to 075 degrees to avoid weather, and the controller approved the request. At 1439.54, the controller instructed the flight to climb to an altitude of 13,000 feet, and the instruction was read back by one of the 182 Flight 182 pilots. This was the last known recorded audio radio transmission by the flight. The flight data recorder, flight data recorder recorded the aircraft altitude was about 10,900 feet, which was the highest altitude recorded in the flight data recorder before the aircraft started its descent. The autopilot system then disengaged at that point on a heading of 016 degrees. The pitch angle was about four and a half degrees nose up, and the aircraft rolled to the left to more than 45 degrees. The thrust lever position of the left engine continued decreasing while the right engine thrust lever remained at the same position. At 1440 local time, the flight data recorder recorded the autothrottle system disengaged and the pitch angle was more than 10 cents X nose down. No, it must be 10 degrees nose down. <laughs> little little uh, translation issue with the uh, text, I think, and what we use to snag these articles. Uh, about 20 seconds later, the flight data recorder stopped recording. The last aircraft coordinate recorded was, and you can look it up if you're interested in what the last coordinates were. At 1440.37 local time, the controller called Flight 182 to request for the aircraft heading, but did not receive any response from the pilot. And then uh, at 1440.48, the radar target of the aircraft disappeared from the Terminal East controller radar screen. Uh, so we know the rest of the story. Uh, they found debris and uh, confirmed that the aircraft had crashed. And uh, they also give this 
um, some data entries from the tech log, the aircraft's tech log showed two recent entries. DMI number list 07956. On the 25th of December 2020, during during a pre-flight check, the engineer found the first officer's mock airspeed indicator malfunctioned. The engineer then transferred the defect into the DMI list number 07956 due to unavailability of a spare part. According to the minimum equipment list, the MEL, the item was classified as repair category C8. I'm not sure what that means. On fourth, the 4th of January 2021, the first officer's mock airspeed indicator was replaced and the test result was satisfied. Then they, they removed or closed that uh, maintenance item. The second one they have listed here is uh, DMI number list 07958. On the 3rd of January, 2021, the pilot reported that autothrottle was unserviceable. The engineer tried cleaning the autothrottle computer's electrical connector, but the problem remained, and it was transferred to um, list number 07958. On the 4th of... No, that was the write-up was on the 3rd. The Okay, I, I skipped this part, didn't I? The first uh, entry here. The pilot reported the autothrottle was unserviceable. The engineer rectified the problem by cleaning the autothrottle computer's electrical connector. After reinstallation, the built-in test equipment, the byte test was... Uh, result was good. The next day, again, they wrote up the autothrottle or whoever the crew was. The engineer tried cleaning the autothrottle computer's electrical connector, but the problem remained and it was transferred to DMI number list 07958. And then the next day on the 5th of January, the, enge the engineer rectified the problem by cleaning the autothrottle takeoff and go around the toga switch and conducted a byte test on the autothrottle computer. The byte test result was good, and the uh, DMI was then closed. So obviously they had some write-ups and issues with the autothrottle system on this jet. And with respect to the weather, the KNKT reported, the superimposed ADS-B-based flight profile with radar image, weather image at 1438 local time provided by the BMKG indicated that the radar intensity level along the flight profile was not more than 25 um whether that would that that would be decibels de decibels dbz i don't know what that unit is um which means that the flight path did not indicate any significant development development of clouds so i don't think weather was a factor out over the java sea for at this accident time it's decibel relative to z but I don't Pardon? know what that means. It's 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 what? <laughs> Decibel relative to Z, logarithmic oh, yeah. dimensionless technical yeah. unit used in radar, mostly weather radar. Ah, okay. I mean, I, I recognize decibels because that's an audio mm -hmm. term, uh, sound pressure level, I think. Um, but I didn't know the Z part. So Yeah. The Z is oh. reflectivity factor. Ah, the reflectivity factor. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Did you learn that in uh, your meteorology uh Yes. Curriculum? Mm. Okay. <laughs> and Google. And Google. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So the, on the 11th of January until 3rd of February, the Directorate General of Civil Aviation, the GGCA, conducted a special inspection to all Boeing 737-300-400-500 models uh, in, in the air in Indonesia. The areas of the inspection were as, as follows. 
Airworthiness Directive Compliances, AD Compliances, Routine and Major Inspection Implementations, Continuing Analysis Surveillance Program Implementation, including the handling of repetitive defects, Pilot Training Program Implementation, including Weather Avoidance and Upset Recovery Training Program, Pilot Proficiency Check Implementation, Flight Duty Time Limitation and Pilot Recent Experience, and Implementation of DGCA Circular regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. Your sound went really hiccupy there. Oh, did it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Liz is telling me that my sound is going. Um, oh, uh, uh, only just occasionally, Jeff, and just for a few okay. seconds. Okay. And uh, this would be a good time to play this. Pardon the interruption. When we're recording the show live, the only person who can hear me is Captain Jeff. Now he's decided to include my audio here in the post-show edit. Lucky you. Enjoy. There we go. <laughs> Who was that? I don't. That some <laughs> some lady calls her calls herself Liz. Some <laughs> flight attendant. Very good, Liz. Oh. <laughs> I can't say that, Liz. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that. Okay. Hey, if it if it uh, gets too crazy or mess or not good, um, somebody let me know, and then I'll switch to the hot spot yeah, on the phone. See been, if that's any better. It's been fine for me. Okay. As you freeze. Very good. Um, and some more stuff here on the, um, preliminary report. If you'd like to read the in-depth report, uh, we have that, we'll have that in the show notes. Um, but, uh, so it seems to me that they're placing a lot of emphasis for a good reason, I think, on this issue with the auto throttle system malfunction or not operating properly. Um, but uh, I'm starting to get the feeling that, Maybe the crew again. This is supposition, and and you know we have to, what's the other word? Um, uh, thanks for helping me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of all sorts of words I could use, none of which were appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, we're not sure. You know, is that what you were? Huh? Speculation? Yeah, that's it. That's the word I was looking for. Thank You're you. welcome. For some reason, I didn't get a really solid night's sleep last night. I was dilly there. I was thinking <laughs> ejaculation, but <laughs> well, I'm sure you were. <laughs> that's like to exclaim something like loudly, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. To, yes. Uh, yes, exclaim loudly. Mm-hmm. It's it's an old use of the. It term. is <laughs> not the mo- not, not the modern common. use <laughs> that. Oh, really? Well, Anywho. I'm an old guy, so. <laughs> so we can use that term. Yep. And, and you shouldn't frown if we do. All Much. Right. Much. <laughs> Maybe a little. Um, anywho, uh, yeah, so uh, it seems to me that uh, the investigators are kind of focusing on the auto throttle system and the fact that perhaps the um, the crew may have gone like, zoomed in and focused so much on what was happening with the auto throttle system that somebody forgot to, and we've mentioned this before on the previous shows, somebody forgot to, you know, mind the airplane, fly the aviate, aviate, navigate, communicate. You know, that's, that's the most important thing. You gotta, you gotta assign somebody, uh, their duty of flying the airplane and let the other person start doing some troubleshooting and figure out what's going on. And, and they lost control of the airplane. It seems that that's what they're 
pointing toward because they talked about. Do you think they realized what was going on there, Jeff? Rather than sort know. of concentrating on the auto throttle, perhaps they just had no idea what was occurring uh, until the aircraft um, started to spiral downwards with that huge I amount guess. of asymmetric thrust. Right, yeah. I mean, how do you miss the throttle? I mean, the, well, the that's a damn the, good question. I'd like to know, but yeah, because we need, a, that, we need that memory card of the uh, voice recorder so we can yeah, have some more right. Insight. That's why I think it's really important yeah. to find the voice recorder. Yeah. Is hear, I mean, actually, hear what I think saying. if you and I had seen the throttle so badly mismatched, we'd have just taken the auto thrust or auto throttle out and and brought the other throttle back up to where it should have been. We wouldn't yeah. have sat there looking at it, going. Why is that throttle idle? You go, well, that's, it's not supposed to be there. Let's put it where it's supposed to be. Boom. Mm-hmm. And all their problems would have been solved. Yes. So I'm, I've got a feeling there. it happened and they didn't weren't really aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were probably concentrating on why is this airplane turning the wrong way? Mm-hmm. Uh, why am I losing control? Uh, and I, I think there was an intimation that they'd left the autopilot in uh, as well, rather than manually flying the airplane, getting mm-hmm. working out what was happening. And um, in addition, I would love to have known what speeds they were doing. There's absolutely no indication here of what the speed was mm-hmm. when they uh, mm-hmm. lost. They must have known it because they've got the all the data. Yeah, they got all the other data. And yeah, F- but they, they're data just data not report. revealing some crucial facts here. Yeah, I think you're right, Steph. It's key that they find that um, hard drive part of the sure. or the car. I mean, even I think even if you had the speeds and other things, you could still look at it, and there would still be, you know, missing chunks of information to actually put it all together. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I I can see why they're putting information about it from the tech log because the engineer was treating various auto throttle problems which obviously reoccurred yet again. And each time all he was doing was cleaning connectors or cleaning yeah. a switch. It sounded like, mm-hmm. I mean, not to, not to make light of, you know, a tragic event, but you know, the old video games when like you'd put the cartridge in and it wouldn't work and you'd take it out and kind of like blow on the thing and mm-hmm. put yeah. it back in to get it to work that, again. That sounds like exactly how they were exactly what his. he was doing, mm-hmm. Steph. Yeah. Uh, and I, the only time that I've ever really known engineers to do that is when they don't have a spare part because normally they go there's a fault here uh we should replace it we, we've got to just take it out we'll send it back to the bay they can have a good look at it we'll put in a fresh one but the only time you mess about just trying to fiddle with connectors and fiddle with buttons and it had like three or four times that they uh, looked at this uh auto throttle um all they're doing is is really tweaking something and then doing a bite. And when the bite comes up good, because the fault is perhaps just not apparent at the time that the bite occurs, uh, they go, oh, it's good. Go and fly it again. And it's the faults reoccurring. So they're tweaking something else. They're not really fixing the problem. No. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems to point to. Yeah. Hmm. Well, hopefully they'll find that thing and we'll learn some more about what happened. I think you're right though, Nick, they probably didn't have any idea what was causing the airplane to start flying wonky, you know? Yeah. I think they were just concentrating ahead on the instrument panels or Mm -hmm. trying to analyze, not looking at the throttle position or at the engine indications, Mm -hmm. looking at something else. I mean, I don't know about you. When I get in your situation, uh, I get an immediate feeling that the airplane's out of balance. 
Yeah. I mean, they all, yeah. the, our bodies actually are pretty good at sensing when we're being forced along sideways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. And I'm really surprised they uh, didn't pick up on the cause of this quicker. Mm-hmm. Me too. And then when the thing did lose control at first, not knowing uh, maybe apparently uh, that, you know, how to, how to recover from it. You know, they, they were, they had plenty of altitude, I think to, you know, get the speed back up where it needed to be, get the wings level, get the thing, you know, pointed back upward and not down toward the ocean. I don't, yeah. Yeah. Which is also why I'm interested to know what the speed was, because uh, Mm -hmm. if they got really low speed and actually got into a spin, then that's, that's that's all over Exactly. But, uh, you know, any other point up to the point at which the aircraft was fully auto rotating, if they'd um, straightened the rudders or current directed the yaw and unloaded the wings, they could just have flown it away. They could have just pulled mm-hmm. both engines to idle and just flown mm-hmm. it away with 10,000 feet and then brought the engines back up and said, recovered, and Bob's mm-hmm. your uncle. But they just mm-hmm. seemed to have sat with it and rode it into the ground. Yeah. Mm. On well, to another crash now. Yeah, well, so much for that crash. Um, another high-profile crash uh, occurred uh, a little over a year ago, January 26th, 2020, was the crash of the Sikorsky S-76B helicopter in Calabasas, California. Uh, the celebrity on the uh, flight uh, was Kobe Bryant and his daughter. And there were, uh, what, uh, seven other passengers, I think? Seven, nine? Nine total? Hmm? I forget. I'm trying I to think remember how many it was. Something like that. Yeah. Um, maybe that includes a pilot as well. So anyway, uh, a bunch of folks. Uh, perished in this crash. And yesterday um, morning, um, I got a chance to watch the NTSB meeting live and their discussion of the crash and all of the uh, probable causes. It was actually quite interesting to see this thing. They were really kind of hashing out uh, proposed language for each of the probable causes and uh, findings and that sort of thing. And, and it was really interesting to me how much serious effort they put in to choosing the proper word to describe what they're trying to describe. And like, you know, what's the difference? Should we use likely or possible and all these different, you know, permutations of uh, the sentence structure and all that kind of stuff. And I was really kind of um, a little taken aback that they spent so much time on all these little details, which is uh, pretty impressive, I think. But anyway, they talked a lot about um, the, uh, what they think happened in this accident, what the primary uh, cause was. And so the National Transportation Safety Board um, meeting uh, notes are here in the show notes. And I guess this is going to form their final report. And uh, this is their synopsis from the NTSB report. Um, On January 26, 2020, about 9.46 Pacific Standard Time, a Sikorsky S-76 helicopter entered a rapidly descending left turn and crashed into terrain in Calabasas, California. Oh, the pilot and eight passengers died, so nine total, and the helicopter was destroyed. The on-demand flight was operated by Island Express Helicopters Incorporated, Long Beach, California, under virtual, excuse me, virtual, visual flight rules and the provisions of Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 135. 
The flight departed from John Wayne Airport, Orange County, SNA, Santa Ana, California, about 9.07, and was destined for Camarillo Airport, CMA, Camarillo, California, about 24 miles west of the accident site. After the helicopter departed from Santa Ana, or uh, John Wayne, it flew at altitudes that remain below 1,700 feet mean sea level, and generally between 400 to 600 feet above ground level. Uh, and the flight's progress through controlled airspace en route to CMA was uneventful. Weather conditions reported to the pilot by air traffic controllers during the flight included an overcast ceiling at 1,100 feet, visibility of two and a half miles with haze, and cloud tops at 2,400 MSL. Um, the uh, anyway, we know. I think you know this crash occurred more than a year ago now, and people are pretty familiar with the fact that um, the air the helicopter crashed when the uh, pilot basically flew into some weather and uh, lost control of the airplane. At least that's what everybody was thinking had happened. And that's what was confirmed in this report by the NTSB. And they focused on the following safety issues, the pilot's pre-flight weather and flight risk planning. Uh, The pilot did complete a flight risk analysis form about two hours before the accident flight's departure. Based on the form's risk scoring criteria, I've never heard of anything like this before. Um, The pilot score for the accident flight was within the company's low-risk category. Updated weather information available at the time the accident flight departed included conditions that met the criteria for the form's risk items that would have required the pilot to seek input from the director of operations and to provide an alternative plan. However, company guidance was unclear as to whether the accident pilot was expected to complete an updated form, and he did not do so. Uh, the flight's entry into instrument meteorological conditions, IMC, and the pilot's inadequate adverse weather avoidance. That was a, another issue that the board focused on. Uh, at the time the pilot took action to initiate a climb, the helicopter had already begun penetrating the clouds. Although the pilot's adverse weather avoidance training emphasized avoiding entry into IMC by slowing the helicopter and maneuvering or landing, there was no evidence that he attempted to do that. Uh, the pilot's spatial disorientation. As the helicopter climbed rapidly into the cloud layer and IMC while in a gradual left turn, the pilot's associated loss of outside visual references made him susceptible to experiencing vestibular illusions in which the vestibular system in the inner ear produces a false sense of helicopter attitude and trajectory that can lead to spatial disorientation. Uh, influences on the pilot's decision to continue the flight into adverse weather Uh, The pilot's continuation of the accident flight into IMC was inconsistent with his typical judgment and decision-making behavior and was likely influenced by his self-induced pressure, lack of an alternative plan, and plan continuation bias. Island Express's incomplete implementation of its safety management system, SMS. The company had an SMS Uh, that was neither required by the Federal Aviation Administration nor part of the company's FAA-approved or accepted programs. Although the company used some SMS tools, it did not implement the entire program and did not perform any safety assurance evaluations, such as those that could have ensured the effectiveness of the flight risk analysis forms. Uh, So they talk a a little bit. They put a lot of emphasis on this uh, safety management um, system uh, and uh, the SMS, or the same thing. Um, let's see. 
Benefits of a flight data monitoring program. FDM involves the recording and analysis of flight-related information to help pilots, instructors, or operators improve performance and safety. An FDM program, which can be integrated into an SMS, has the potential to provide inf- important information regarding pilot performance during flights, which may be particularly beneficial for operators like Island Express that conduct single pilot operations and thus have little opportunity to d- directly observe their pilots in the operational environment. Uh, so I think it's almost like a real-time system where they can monitor the performance of their pilots and flights, if, if I got that right. Um, anyway, so... They, they discussed a whole bunch of different things that I don't really see um, in this final report um, or whatever you want to call this. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the discussion was had about um, why Island Express helicopters operated this particular helicopter with only one pilot or single pilot because they got this thing certified for that kind of operation. Uh, whereas there were some clients that hired Island helicopters. Uh, Island Express helicopters to perform charters for them, uh, but they 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 insisted upon or required that the flight be operated by two pilots. But it wasn't; it's not required by the FAA. This whole thing's certified uh, for single pilot operation. But there there was a pretty good discussion about, and there was some disagreement there too. That was interesting to see when the um, the head of the uh, NTSB was kind of saying he thought that that was an important factor and then a couple of others kind of um, disagreed um, and then they moved on to something else so I don't really see anything about that here in the and uh, this uh, abstract of the meeting yesterday um, the other thing that was interesting is that the airplane when it was built and delivered initially to I don't know a couple of previous operators um, the uh, the flight, uh, the was it the cockpit voice or flight data recorder? Maybe I, it was one of those systems that was installed. Maybe the, uh, it was a flight data recorder, uh, but because it wasn't required, uh, Island Express helicopters removed it when they were doing some other kind of an upgrade to the uh, instrument panel, and uh, some people kind of thought that that was unusual and were wondering about that. And uh, one of the uh, Staff members had said that a lot of times companies like this will, if it's something that's not required, that means that that's one less thing that they have to maintain. Um, they can save some money on, uh, you know, making sure that it's operating properly and that kind of thing. So, uh, but they they thought that 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 was kind of an unusual. I got that. I gathered that they kind of thought that that just didn't seem right or kind of felt strange that they took that thing out. Uh, there also was a really good discussion. I don't know how many of you had a chance to see this uh, about the um, TAS. Uh, what does that stand for? Stuff the Terrain Awareness Warning System. Or, mm-hmm. TAS um, is that what you said? Sorry, you broke up yes, a little bit there. Yeah, T A W S. I think, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like our enhanced ground proximity warning system. Yeah, it's terrain, kind of. terrain avoidance and warning system. I think is what. Okay, actually terrain says. avoidance yeah. and warning system. Okay. Or terrain, terrain awareness and warning system. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Um, awareness, avoidance, whatever. I'm not sure what the A stands for. But anyway, um, in this case, though, they made they, they made a special point about this, saying that at the point at which this system would have kicked in and started throwing out all those warnings, uh, it was it was too late. The airplane, it, the the pilot had 
suffered the spatial disorientation and had lost control of the airplane at that point. And that would have been just one added factor of craziness going on in the cockpit with the thing, you know, warning about the terrain, you know, you know, pull up, pull up, whatever it is. That would be loud and annoying for sure. Right. And they, so they kind of said, you know, that's not really a factor in this crash. I mean, it's an important system to have. They, they, you know, made sure that they iterated that. But uh, in this case, in this particular crash, it wouldn't have helped the situation um, because the pilot was aware of the terrain. Uh, it's just that he um, inadvertently, accidentally uh, flew into IMC. And, and another point they made is that when he was in this gradual left turn um, in cloud, um, one of the controlling agencies asked him to ident and that would mean that he would have to um, look away from his instrumentation and you know look down at the center console where the um, where the uh, um, transponder is mm-hmm. and hit the ident button and that and Nick I'm think I think so you, that's all well and good both. but you know we were talking about this with the last one you'd fly mm-hmm. the airplane first if it's not something that you can safely do in that right. moment you know that 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 just does not help you know you're the inner ear, what is it called? Cilia or whatever, the little hairs in your yeah, so inner ear system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you kind of Otoliths have a rapid and- movement of your head to look for something and and then look back, that kind of give you gives you a feeling of something that is not really happening. And you don't trust your instrumentation at that point, which you have to. Um, yeah, and we were you- talking about the Coriolis trap that occurs when you're in a turn and you look down to one side, you can induce movement in all three semicircular canals, which is very disorientating. Um, but, um, and this I is mean, a case where you said, you know, like another pilot, if there was just one pilot just concentrating on flying the instruments, yeah, the other yeah. pilot could easily just turn his head and, you know, push the, or her head and push well, that's the. what would normally idea. happen. You know, you, the, mm-hmm. the pilot flying doesn't do that stuff. The pilot monitoring does those actions because the pilot flying is concentrating on his instruments. Quite and another point we but, made. Yeah. I'm sorry. I keep mm. interrupting you. Um, that, so, you know, why didn't he turn the autopilot on? This thing is a, has a fully equipped, very advanced autopilot system where he could have hooked up the autopilot and let the autopilot he, fly. He uh, wasn't used to using it. Uh, um, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah. uh, or in that moment, I see to recall, it doesn't mention this, but I see to recall that he wasn't actually qualified or the aircraft wasn't equipped to fly in cloud. Was- well, so there was something we've talked about that with that before, and that's where you need two pilots. I think for, was that part of it? No, I think that you can, you can fly it that out. way. Single pilot. I'm pretty sure IFR, but I think that the company is not certificated to perform operations in IMC or IFR operations it's strictly certified for vfr only Uh, but i think that he was technically qualified to fly ifr in the helicopter although i heard some reports from other sources that said that his actual instrument flying experience was like under an hour even though he had logged apparently according to the company's 70 something hours of of uh, instrument flight time in helicopters um but again, that wasn't a requirement by the company because the company wasn't certified to fly in instrument meteorological conditions anyway. Yeah. That's my I mean, understanding. I was surprised they didn't make mention of his inability 
to fly in cloud uh, because yeah, you know, for me that's for me that's the major factor here. Uh, if he'd been confident flying on his instruments, he would have been able to and and regularly practice. He would have been able to fly this maneuver in his sleep, um, including hitting the ident button. Because you know there are heaps of pilots out there that would happily take on all those tasks. But I think his lack of currency uh, might have had it. Uh, quite a dramatic effect on his ability to control the aircraft once he went into cloud. Um, I don't know. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I, think, I agree. And, th- and uh, the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board um, and, and maybe a couple of the other um, primary board members uh, had a pretty interesting discussion about the fact that perhaps this kind of um, Part 135 operation um, in, in the fixed-wing world you know, yeah, you have to have it's it's an IFR operation when you're transporting passengers, but for some reason in the helicopter world, Part 135 charter work is not required, and they're wondering. I mean, obviously there are some situations where you're going to charter a helicopter to do a a certain kind of mission for you for whatever you need that you know rely upon the helicopter's unique capabilities of you know where you, where IFR flying is not possible. But they said when you're transporting passengers from point A to point B, and whether it be a helicopter or a fixed wing, um, perhaps we should look at requiring all of these charter operations to be fully IFR, just like all the other transportation um, conveyances or whatever. That's transport, like Part 121, mm-hmm. uh, Part Part 135, fixed wing. You know, why not require that for helicopter operators as well? So. Makes sense. Yeah, lots of good stuff. Um, I'm Micah says that I'm, I look like I've eaten too many oranges. By the way, we have a story about that. Um, yes, we do. Coming up, are you helping them <laughs> out? This is, this is my favorite uh, news item of the day coming up here a little bit. <laughs> um, and I, I just adjusted my uh, white balance, so hopefully I'm not quite so orange anymore. Is that better? I want to make everybody happy here. Burnt umber, Neil says on his screen. <laughs> okay. Um, let's not focus on the chat room, Jeffrey. Let's concentrate on doing a show and talking about news. Um, anything else you guys want to mention or add to this discussion about the uh, NTSB? No, I'm just going to say that um, it's tragic loss. But if um, this report is because of the... Um, you know, the famous passenger, uh, if this report actually does something concrete to improve the situation for these uh, type of uh, carriers, then I think it will have a, ultimately have a great benefit. I would hate well, to see always this kind of one. The, you know, sad side of the, um, the, the positive side of sad stories like this. You know, you get changes that are made for good reasons, but because of something tragic that happens. It is, but this one's high profile enough, I think, perhaps to carry some weight that other accidents might not. Sure. Another thing that you could tell the the frustration of these NTSB members because they said, you know, this this kind of accident happens two times a year, uh, on average, every six months. Um, completely fatal crash, mm-hmm. and uh, and they said, you know, we we need to do something. Uh, these Pilots need to understand what to do when you 
inadvertently fly into instrument meteorological conditions. Um, and uh, yeah, so as you said, Nick, hopefully uh, the hope high profile um, character of this will help, you know, get yeah. something done this time. Yeah, exactly right. All right, very good. Um, item C, uh, former BMI. What's BMI stand for again? Uh, British Midland International. Uh, okay, a, I think. a British airline Midland. that is no longer no longer living. Right? That was a yeah, yeah. A they, British they, Midland yeah. International. Mm-hmm. Yeah, British oh, hey, Midland I got it International. Right. Okay, excellent. Well, um, a former. BMI Baby Boeing 737 is going to be transformed into a caravan, or if you're in the U.S. That's an odd thing to be able to do. Sorry. Yeah, you'd have thought thought they'd have have got hold of a caravan if they wanted to. Oh, no, 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 that's that's not a caravan. They make those still. You can get a caravan. You don't have to go through the trouble of shrinking down. Shorts Shorts used to make the caravan. Yeah. So that's a term that you all use in England and Europe to kind of like a recreational vehicle or a trailer or something. It's trailer. So a trailer. yeah, it's, okay. it's a box on two wheels or okay. possibly more mm-hmm. that you tow behind your car uh, that's designed to slow traffic uh, on a you know uh, any <laughs> any sort of smallish road down to about five <laughs> miles an hour. That's the whole purpose. <laughs> Of caravans. <laughs> you have some experience I'm <laughs> detecting. <Yeah. laughs> some frustrations with uh, yes. a little frustration. Just a few, yes. Um, so I, I don't see a caravan in your future as far as you owning one and towing one behind your your Audi uh, uh, no. roadster. No, I think uh, a nice hotel with a bar. <laughs> It's a better idea. But well, hey, this guy, he's a former aircraft technician. His name is Steve Jones. Uh, currently a stay-at-home dad, has a pretty neat project underway. Jones is turning a 27-year-old scrapped 737-500 into a caravan and is sharing his progress in the world of social meds. Uh, They say social media. Um, Let's see. This 737 was once Golf Bravo Victor Kilo Bravo, last flying with airline BMI Baby until the carrier was grounded in 2012. BMI Baby? Huh? That's what it says. BMI baby. <laughs> well, it was a small version of BMI, so. Oh. Cute. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. A resident of Lancashire, England, Jones, has been sharing his journey on Facebook via his public group, the Boeing 737 Static Caravan Build. According to Air Live News, the aircraft section was purchased via con tax with the industry, although Jones' desire was to use as much of the aircraft as possible for his static caravan transportation, uh, caravan, comma, transportation of the aircraft would be a challenge. In this case, he would have to move it 130 miles from Bruntingthorpe Airfield to Lancashire. Is that right? Yeah, isn't that the one that uh, PTUK used to go to every year? It was an airfield where they had, yeah, yeah, they had a number of... uh, Aircraft that could still run up and down the runway. Um, they weren't flying, mm-hmm. but they could run their engines and drive them and around, ta- taxi around. Yeah. So, uh, um, so that's closed down mm. sadly as a result of the pandemic and uh, fundings. So uh, they're getting rid of a lot of their stock. Huh. Well, let's see. Uh, Liz is telling me that Neil in the chat room 
has some kind of involvement with uh, Bruntingthorpe? Is that what? I think he did. He I did. Okay. He did with a super guppy or something. With a super guppy or something like that, she says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the aircraft they had, which was, you know, a pretty oh. rare machine uh, and, um, you know, an unusual aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, why you'd want to hang on to something quite so ugly, I'm not sure. But uh, they, they loved it. With <laughs> there, a there he is with the compliments again. Yeah. <laughs> so complimentary today. He's being very complimentary today. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I'm feeling in that kind of a mood. Are you? Okay. Curmudgeonly? Yeah. Um, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> a bit nosy, aren't anyway. you? <laughs> so, let's That's continue here. In the end, Jones settled for the front section of the 737. From the nose to the section of the fuselage just before the wings, the total length of his static caravan is 9 meters. And there's a picture of it uh, being picked up by a crane. Uh, according to posts on Facebook, the process began with finding the aircraft in July 2020, a process that will soon or that will see the 737 section become a four birth static caravan. Oh, they're going to birth babies in it like a little like a little uh, neonatal unit or something. Right. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's not right. Birth is a B.E. It's going to be a maternity ward. Yes, Liz. <laughs> That's why it's baby BMI. <laughs> baby BMI. Sure. Hey. It's all coming together here. Makes I understand sense. now. Um, I guess that means uh, f- sleeping for four in a static caravan. Yep. So I guess a static caravan is even worse, Nick. I mean, they're not even going five miles per hour. No, no, no. They're, they're completely blocking the road. So. <laughs> what a nightmare. I mean, what is Traffic the, jam yeah. for miles. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, you can park it somewhere and it will pr- probably never move. So uh, there you go. <laughs> Here's a quote from most people buy cars or bikes. Oh, not me. I'm crazy. <laughs> well, I, I love that I'm crazy part. <laughs> mm. But he's got a little diagram of what he's going to do with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that he specified that it's the original toilet where the toilet is going. <laughs> yeah. Toilet. Yeah. Original, original toilet. toilet. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, I wonder yeah. what's happening in the avionics bay because he doesn't seem to have allocated some of that. There's nothing happening in the radome. What, what's he going to have behind <laughs> the the radome? Is he going to put a barbecue in there or something? Uh, no, I, uh, Liz is saying it's going to be his man cave. Oh, okay. How about the cockpit? What's <laughs> happening in the cockpit? I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Not much, like Probably in my not. cockpit. <laughs> Uh, Liz, 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 stop it. And, uh, is, uh, how's, how's he going to put a lock on the door? Cause an <laughs> airliner doesn't actually have any locks on the door. I don't, I don't mm. know. Does it just, do they have not talk about it in this I'll uh, have article. to take a trip to yeah. Home Depot and find something that'll. Yeah. I'm yeah. Bolt it but it's, yeah. he has a history, this chap, cause mm-hmm. he's already turned an engine into. Yeah. Look uh, at that. It should be on the screen, right? Yeah. Um, that looks actually cool. You know, what would look great would be a kind of bullet-shaped uh, perspex or glass dome on the front. So that, I, think that there, I think there is glass right there. On yeah, the, on but the you want one that goes, sticks out like a bullet. That would look so oh, good. But anyway, okay. I, I guess it's got a flat one. But uh, mm-hmm. I, li- I like the idea. It would be a bit small in there. <laughs> it's a, cozy. It's kind of a personal Just thing. Cozy. Nick. Hmm. Yeah. What would you say, Steph? Cozy. Cozy, yeah. Be like one of those anyway. Japanese sleeping pods. Yeah, this is a, a VC-10 engine caravan was his first project. Uh, 
very interesting. This one does not look like a static one because it looks like it has wheels and a typical trailer that goes five miles per hour down the country road. <laughs> I've been on some of those English like country roads too, and they're not very wide. No, you, you can't overtake. No, <laughs> somewhat problematic. I swear. There were a couple of times when I was in England a couple of years ago, um, driving with Nige and uh, and Nick, <laughs> thinking. They're, are they like pulling my chain here? This this is not really a road. I mean, I, we were in some <laughs> farmer's field in, in a, on a trail at best, and they go, "Yeah, this is a road." I mean, they showed me on the on the maps, uh, Google Maps or whatever. I'm thinking, really, <laughs> uh, you're pulling my leg, right? No, no, they, anyway. they 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 might be a little old fashioned, but they're yeah. They're Queen's I mean, not enough. There's barely enough room for one car to be going one direction. I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, is this one way? No. Well, what happens when somebody is coming the other way? Yeah. Figure it out. I don't know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just work right. it out. Yeah. 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 There's the BMI baby. It really right there, is BMI baby. How funny. That's a. That's a weird logo. Look at the baby it's a little creepy. On the tail. If you ask me. What kind of baby is that on the tail? It doesn't. Is that a? It looks more like an, an alien a, baby, like a like, bug. I don't know. Alien. It's got or an alien baby, like an alien baby, definitely. <laughs> Maybe that's why they didn't make it. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, you want to read more about that? Really, not much more about it, but uh, we'll have that in the show notes he looks for you. Happy. Yeah, it's a happy guy. He's just happy to get away from those kids. He's a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> um, D, tower controller credited. With save of a CV-22, which is an Osprey, I think. Yep. At Kirkland AFB from Flying Magazine. And, oh, Rob Mark uh, used to be a co-host of uh, the longest-running aviation and probably the best one out there, um, aviation podcast, um, Airplane Geeks. Um, he is the uh, one of the editors at uh, Flying Magazine. The media team at Kirkland. Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, first reported the story of how a civilian air traffic controller, Wendy Smith, working in Kirkland Tower, saved the six-person flight crew of an Air Force CV-22 and avoided a $90 million accident. Cassidy is a 12-year veteran controller at Kirkland. Uh, the news release said they were taking off on a night tactical sortie. On climb out, the air traffic controller called the aircraft commander on the radio. Hey, Dusty 73 your right prop rotor looks weird, she said. The crew looked out the window, and usually the three prop rotor tip lights are in a perfect line, showing that everything is in sick, sick, in sync. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, they could see that one of the blades was not. That was enough. They came back in, landed, got a new aircraft, and went back out. The maintenance team downloaded the information, and one blade was vibrating at three times its limit. Some inspections found a pitch link bearing that controls the blade pitch was falling apart. It had probably another 45 minutes to an hour left of life at that rate, and it was breaking down. If the aircraft had continued and the aircrew hadn't noticed the vibrations, it would have been a catastrophic failure. That would have been a loss of the aircraft and crew. And uh, so there's a picture of that beautiful uh, rotary wing CV-22 performing a tactical mission. Uh, let's see. The 71st Special Operations Squadron Commander, Lieutenant Colonel Brett Cassidy, said on that flight, the CV-22 students. Name. Pardon? That's a great name, Brett Cassidy. Yeah, Brett Cassidy. I like that. 
on that flight, the CB22 students were in the end phases of their training, <laughs> really, really close to their end, uh, with their focus on <laughs> operating under low light conditions using night vision gear and doing full brownout landings where they have no visibility of the landing zone. <laughs> I, I've what got some brownouts. Brownout landing. I've come close to having one of those, but. Uh, I'm not a full well, one. You've got your, you know, That's a spare pair stinky, of stinky situation. Yeah. Pants with you. Um, <laughs> I felt the same thing when I saw that. Uh, it's a pretty complex mission set, so most folks aren't really thinking about issues on departure out of fear. <laughs> out of fear. They're thinking about how they're going to clean out their flight suits. <laughs> yeah. On January 8th, 2021, Cassidy presented Wendy Smith with a special coin to commemorate the save. That's all she got was a coin? Yeah, yeah, a quarter. <laughs> yeah, dear, have a quarter. Thank you very I much. I got the T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, uh, I, I was gobsmacked to find out that they had lights on the tips of those rotors. Yeah. I mean, how do they get power out there? Mm, wires? Ooh, you think the <laughs> wires how does, how does anything work on tangled up? Or on a, anything <laughs> with rotor... Like, no, yeah, it's exactly. Magic. Yeah. It's like, Especially the it is all magic. To be fair, that's even uh, more magic. <laughs> power to her elbow, uh, Wendy Smith, because uh, it would be very easy to have gone. Ah, you, you know, uh, they're probably going to be fine. But to have the uh, courage of her convictions to uh, pipe up and say, "Yeah, it didn't look quite right." I think that's mm -hmm. very cool, and it's the sort of attitude everyone in aviation should have. You know, you're. An airport employee, and you're sweeping the taxiway, and you see an airplane taxi by, and it's leaking something. You shouldn't just go back to your broom and go, "Well, that's not my problem." You should pick up your mm -hmm. mobile and dial the airport and say, "I think that you know someone should perhaps ask the crew about this." And it's mm -hmm. happened to me plenty of times because uh, one of the things uh, our aircraft was peculiar for was um, being a bit oily, a bit smoky from a vent uh, on the engine uh, uh, soon after start and for the first, you know, five, ten minutes. So we regularly used to get calls from crews who hadn't seen it before or people outside the aircraft. But I always thought it was great because it shows that they're having an interest, taking an interest in the safety of the aircraft and their environment. Uh, so brilliant. And taking the risk that, you know, you might be made fun of for yeah. saying, saying yeah, you, something. Yeah, you and I understand that it's so important when you get that kind of a message not to belittle someone who's gone to the trouble of telling you and say, ah, oh, I've you know, don't bother me. That's that happens every time. You know, you should give them some thanks for taking the time and being concerned, even e if even it, if it is. turns out to be, even if it turns out to be nothing. You should. Say yeah, absolutely. Right. If it turns out to be nothing, yeah. And so. you know, people that send us feedback sometimes express like you know they they're not sure if this is a good, you know, worthy kind of a question to ask and. I always, you know, really appreciate people that do that, that kind of just put it out there and think, okay, this may be a dumb question, but I'll bet somebody else probably is wondering the same thing. And so yeah. here mm -hmm. we go. Yeah. Exactly so, right. Okay. You still feeling um, like an orange there, Jeff? Yeah. I, I'm feeling better now, but uh, <laughs> apparently a couple of passengers didn't feel very well after eating 66 pounds of oranges in 30 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Three of them, I think. Right? I think it was three. Four, pe four people. Yeah. Four. Okay. Uh, so each one had to uh, gobble up seven point five kilograms, I believe. That's what thirteen, fourteen, uh, more than fourteen. That's like 
That's a lot. <laughs> Let's read this. Um, unexpected baggage fees can sting like a squirt of citrus in your eye, but four travelers, uh, very clever, but I didn't make that up, but four travelers teamed up to make lemonade out of lemons, actually orange juice out of oranges, after being faced with exorbitantly higher baggage fees to transport their or- oranges home. 30 minutes later, they had downed 66 pounds of oranges. Okay, so 66 divided by 4 is 15, 16, yeah, as you said, stuff. 16 what, and a half. A little over 16 pounds. It's 16 and, and a half. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, the incident occurred at Kunming Airport, KMG in China's Yunnan province. Mr. Wang and his three colleagues had pooled their resources to purchase a 30-kilogram box of oranges during a business trip to Kunming and now wished to take it home to their families. But during check-in for their flight, they were informed that the fee to transport the oranges would be 300 CNY, which is about 46 U.S. dollars. That was too high a price tag for their beloved oranges, so they decided to have a party. <laughs> we just stood there and ate the whole thing up. Took about 20 to 30 minutes. <laughs> Sadly. That's a lot of peeling. They failed to consider the consequences of such a citrus overload. Soon after completing their impressive consumption, all four started to suffer from ulcers in their mouths. Uh, per Mr. Wang, we never want to have any oranges again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the writer of this article no kidding next time perhaps spread them out over your carry-on bags as someone who loves fresh squeezed orange juice this story is a valuable lesson to me aren't you glad orange you glad it wasn't you okay Okay. this is from liveandletsfly.com i don't think i've ever consumed 16 and a half pounds of anything in one sitting no and if they were like beer maybe (laughs) no and honestly, if, if I was trying to transport something that, you know, I wasn't terribly worried about, um, like wasn't some sort of heirloom or, you know, something with sentimental mm-hmm. value, just a bunch of citrus fruit, and I didn't have the funds to do so, I'd be like, all right. Steph, just you're just too logical. Here. You know, just too logical. I know. I'm okay. guessing it was a bit of a protest, really, at, at them charging them. Uh, excess package, but uh, perhaps I still they could have thrown them at the agents. They didn't. They they it kept it nonviolent. Been. Reminds me of the story of a bunch of uh, aircrew in Cyprus who wanted to, you know, take watermelons home. They were flying a Vulcan and they uh, threw a whole heap of watermelons into the Bombay, forgetting that the Bombay isn't pressurized. <laughs> and they got oh. to altitude, oh. and all these, all these watermelons exploded. exploded. <laughs> oh man! When they, what a uh, mess. when they got to the other end, and uh, they crawled underneath the airplane to recover their goods, all they could see was all these watermelons just leaking out <laughs> of the belly of the airplane. <laughs> oh man! <sighs> Live and learn. All right. Continuing yep, on. Indeed. Uh, aviation pioneers were honored at the virtual R.A. Bob Hoover Awards. This happened, uh, let's say we recorded the last show on the 3rd of February. And so that night, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern time, uh, there was this virtual um, award presentation. Uh, let's see, famed aerodynamicist Bert Rutan, or Rutan, no, Rutan 
who designed Voyager, the first aircraft to make a nonstop, non-refueled circumnavigation in 1986, and Spaceship One, which made three successful suborbital spaceflights in 2004, will be honored with the prestigious R.A. Bob Hoover Trophy Award. Rutan is also the guy that uh, designed uh, that uh, long, easy mm-hmm. uh, home built that uh, John Denver was flying when he uh, Yeah, that's crashed. right. I remember. Yeah. Uh, Rutan has designed 49 manned aircraft, 25 of which the public can view in museums worldwide. 17 are still flying. The first trophy was presented to Hoover himself in 2016, Sean Tucker in 2017, Harrison Ford in 2018, and Clay Lacey. got one. Was that for one of his landings? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) Hey, Harrison, you landed on the runway. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) And the golf course. Most people use golf carts, (laughs) not airplanes. Um. Let's see. The uh, what was it going to? Oh, Steph, remember we were walking around uh, Oshkosh. There was a really interesting airplane design. I think that was a Rutan. It was a Rutan, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I what don't remember which one called? it was or what it was called, but it was yeah. definitely unique. It's like impossible to stall it or something. Um, I don't remember oh, the details. It was, was that the one with canards? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, if you set the canards so that it stalls uh, at a lower angle of attack than the main wing behind you, you can mm-hmm. never get the main wing to a stalling angle of attack because the canard stalls and the aircraft pitches down, mm-hmm. which unloads the wing behind you and you never stall. I mean, hmm. that's the... Yeah, I think, I think that was the whole concept behind that, that airplane. Yeah. You can never get the best turning performance out of your aircraft, but you, can, you can't stall it. There you go. Um, so... In addition to the Bob Hoover Trophy Award, there was also the inaugural Brigadier General Charles E. McGee Aviation Inspiration Award was given to and presented to retired Brigadier Brigadier General Charles McGee, a member of the Tuskegee Airmen. In addition to honoring McGee with the first award, uh, the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association were the ones that sponsored this whole thing, uh, AOPA, uh, will also present it to its second recipient, or they did present it to the second recipient, U.S. Air Force Major Kenyatta Ruffin, an F-16 pilot and commander of the 71st Operations Support Squadron. Ruffin founded the nonprofit Legacy Flight Academy, which helps youth discover their passion for aviation careers and hosts programs that draw upon the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. And... uh, Finally, they had the AOPA Air Safety Institute Senior Vice President Richard McSpadden. Oh, he's the guy that uh, presented the GA, the Georgia Safety Award, to. Oh, wait a minute, that's not right. GA, General, General Aviation, Aviation. <laughs> Safety Award. In my case, both, you know, little airplanes. I thought you know, it was Georgia. Go Around Safety GA. Award. Go Around Safety Award. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> to Boris Popov. Founder of BRS Aerospace, the company's whole aircraft parachute rescue system has saved more than 400 lives. More than 35,000 systems have been installed on experimental, sport-certified, and military aircraft. The award honors those who have delivered exceptional performance in safety to benefit the entire general aviation industry. So, there you go. 
just wanted to mention that these fine folks received awards, and uh, that was last week. So, yeah, so really very appreciate. deserving recipients. Mm-hmm. I suspect Rutan has been awarded many times, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's he's a pretty pretty smart bloke, quite honestly. Yeah, he uh, yeah he is. And then finally, uh, a little lighter news. Um, stuck in the cock. This is from a Twitter account, I think. Yeah, Twitter web app. Uh, so, uh, stuck in the cockpit of a locked Boeing 737-900. Here, I need to... This people in the chat room need to see, right? This picture here. So, let me share my screen again. And there we go. Probably most people that are in the chat room have already seen this, but just in case you haven't. Stuck in the cockpit of a locked Boeing 737-900ER for X-Ray Echo Hotel Bravo. Um, let's see. In Tel Aviv, a cat. The plane last took off to Dubai on January 24th and has since been on the ground. And we're talking like a couple of weeks. Uh, so there, there's a picture of the uh, captain's front windshield and on the on the instrument panel dash is a not so happy looking uh pussy cat i know uh, this wanting cat. to i i get hear out i hear this cat frequently on on uh, guard <laughs> yeah guard <laughs> <laughs> that you know what i hadn't thought of that stuff very good i saw that somewhere else i will take no credit for uh, originality okay. of my thoughts but that did make me laugh now i, I now just we know feel where that sorry for from. it i mean it's, I I, what did it eat and drink oh it ate the flight the deck. <laughs> funny you should ask nick yeah. it's like well there's no food here let's try this uh yeah, this oh, this would make a really good scratching pad here. I'm going to eat the flight the- deck, but I mean, it's pretty hot country, and uh, that, an airplane is all closed up. Must be like an oven. I'm amazed yeah, it survived. Well, the good news is that shortly after sharing this on social media, um, maybe the people that owned the airplane thought, "Hmm, I mean, we should get somebody out there and open up that airplane, get the cat out." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think so. so uh, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the kitty is safe and sound. Well, it definitely used up one of its nine lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably pooped all over the place, too. Mm. Well, yeah. A little bit of cleanup yeah. to do. Yeah. Should have checked for the cat before and locking the door on the way that's, out. Cat poop stinks. I mean, mm. like it's well, going I mean, out of fashion. It all stinks. <laughs> well, it's true, but <laughs> to be fair, you know, cats really stink. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it. Uh, for our news for episode 460 and that means yay one of my favorite parts of the show just a step down from the old pilot's plane tales getting to know us apparently what's that been happening needle and syringe since... really freaks people out what's that I said apparently that picture of me with the needle and syringe really freaks people out yeah <laughs> I think I've it's heard great. that it is a little intimidating for sure uh, here, let me uh, stop sharing the screen. Oh, I have, I'm not sharing the screen. Okay. Um, let's see. Nothing's really been happening for me. How about you, Nick? Uh, I've been out um, in the That's snow, running around, doing, uh, you know. Can, can you not hear me properly? Would you like me to speak up? No, we're good. Okay. Uh, it's just my, my little um, in-ear monitor things are just not staying in my ear canal keep popping out 
said the actress to the bishop. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a bit wintry here, so uh, temperatures uh, getting well below zero. In fact, tonight's going to go into about minus six. Tomorrow night, probably uh, minus eight uh, centigrade. Um, so uh, a little bit wintry, but, uh, you know, we're getting out. Good news is uh, I'm going to uh, have a go at the jab tomorrow morning. So uh, uh, we're going to get yeah, on our inoculation. The UK is, um, is cracking on very well with its... Uh, in our inoculation program. So I'm uh, in the over 65 group just, uh, so, you know, we're, uh, we're getting done and, uh, uh, you know, pretty soon it's going to be, you know, uh, the whole nation, which will be fantastic. Uh, whether that actually gives us the freedom we hope, uh, time will tell, but, uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, I've really enjoyed doing uh, this week's plain tale, and I, and I will say it again later on. But uh, enormous thanks to the participants who contributed towards it, because it uh, uh, has made it um, a fascinating addition to the red flag one I did last week. Um, and um, uh, they, they've got some great stories. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So that that. But, in order to create the tale, I had to chop our conversations up into about 200 bite-size sound clips and then put them all in the right categories and then reassemble them in some kind of order. So uh, it's been a <laughs> definite labor of love, but mm -hmm. we've got two out of it. So uh, I don't have to do one for next week. I've, I can put my feet up a bit so looking for excellent yeah um other than that um everything's ticking over very nicely here thank you very much good hmm. steph you've been doing anything since mm, the last episode don't think so no haven't seen really anyone done anything <laughs> no uh no one no, of well, note <laughs> no one of note <laughs> no um i think we alluded to it last week that your schedule has you mm -hmm. laying over in charlotte frequently this month so mm -hmm. one of those days was yesterday and i was not too terribly busy yesterday so i was able to make some time to hang out see you that's all relative when she says something like that because she's always busy <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's true um but we had um some nice uh, tacos for dinner from White Duck Taco mm -hmm. Shop, which is fantastic if you're ever in Charlotte or Asheville or I think Greenville, South Carolina has one now as well. Mm. Um, definitely check it out. And um, then we went over to a local brewery and had a couple of IPAs. Yes. It was very I think nice. we only had like one or two. I mean, very, dozen very <laughs> uh, beers. Um, in moderation, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Let me tell you something. Don't ever get into a contest with Steph because she'll drink you under the table. <laughs> don't know how she does it. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward and we've, to that. And we've Practice. said that before <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Keep myself in shape. Yeah. Well, and I don't know where it all goes. But anyway, um, yeah, really, really good beer at uh, Legion, Legion Brewing. Brewing. Mm -hmm. And it was fun because we didn't know, but uh, last night it was like a it's trivia, trivia night. I think every Tuesday there's yeah. trivia night. Yeah. And then we, you know, we were uh, on at the taco place on Tuesday, so you know, Taco, taco Tuesday. Tuesday. 
trivia. Very appropriate. Yep. Steph picked me up at the hotel in her bright blue Jeep. Really cool looking vehicle. Did she have her top on? Mm-hmm. Um, well, her or the Jeep? She was asking about the top. Oh. Well, so it yeah, is she, not both, wintry here. Both the like, uh, vehicles like, had tops on. Like Nick uh, has been experiencing, but it was not quite warm enough for top down on the Jeep. Right. Yeah. Little, little. Although chilly. I did not see, bad. I did see a Jeep no, driving 60s, top down right before I picked you up yesterday. Well, okay. Yeah. Would have been anyway, okay for yeah. about an hour and a half in the afternoon yesterday. We had fun. Yeah. We had fun. So um, I invited my first officer to go with us and, um, but he had some excuse. I, I, you know, he probably doesn't like hanging around with me. Um, but no, he was doing his bids or something and um, it, it was getting close to the, to the, uh, the wire getting those deadline. Uh, deadline. Thank you, Liz. Um, and uh, so he asked me this morning when we were up very early uh, for an early flight out of Charlotte this morning. So where'd you guys go? And I told him where we went and he goes, Oh, Oh, they have one of those here. <laughs> you can just tell <laughs> talk, he was shop. a little yeah. <laughs> sorry. He had passed on the uh, opportunity to uh, dine with two extremely attractive and uh, very entertaining people. Mm-hmm. Steph and I, yeah. I'm talking about. Oh, I and, uh, perhaps had some other guests. <laughs> <laughs> I was confusing that. Who are these people? He's talking about? He's extremely good looking. And I, I'm already confused about. What the white white ducks were? I mean, were they Aylesbury ducks? They that, white. So I don't I know how they did. where they sourced their duck from, but my favorite is the mole roasted duck taco. Uh-huh. That was re- really good because I, I hear Steph talk about that all the time, and so I said I'll have one of those as well. And then I think I had a Thai chicken, Thai peanut think, chicken or something. Thai peanut sauce chicken. Peanut Thai chicken. I think yeah, it was really good. Yeah, everything was good there. With um, Salsa but apparently, the whoever started the entrepreneur that started this restaurant used to call her the White Duck or something like that, and that's how the restaurant got its name. Uh, had something to do with the owner cook. That the story is on the web on their website. I forget. Yeah, it. that's where I read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyway, and then I, I I said yeah, and after the White Duck taco shop we went over to legion brewing and he goes oh man they make really good beer i said yeah <laughs> they make yeah, all their own time. beer do they yes they do excellent yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so uh great great ad- oh is and do, yeah we mentioned trivia night mm-hmm. so we kind of played but we unofficially we, we didn't yeah. bother to actually write down our answers and turn them in or anything we helped out the table next and, to us a couple times yeah we would have embarrassed everybody you, you by, cheated by uh, helping smallish. out the table next door we did. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that Steph goes, oh, "I'm I'm terrible at this trivia stuff," and she like got like almost five every row, single correct. question <laughs> right. I mean, uh huh. Yeah, you're not very good at this. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Anyway, and and we, we were telling Liz there were a couple of Canadian centric questions, which was yeah, like, more than like, a couple. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. We got uh, one of no, them Liz, right. One of them wrong. Fifty percent. Uh, it's about right. I um yeah Perfect. we were definitely nailing the fifty percent. Um. <laughs> No, um, no coffee fund overlays, uh, Liz. I didn't have enough time to uh, to do that, so I'll do that after the fact. All right. What are you doing, sir? I was just trying to dodge the oh the fifty percent sign that was coming down. <laughs> it kept smacking me in the face. Getting whacked on the head, huh? Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, Steph, all uh, Steph and I have to do is like move to the side. 
Yeah. Oh, wait. I have to okay, Liz, think about which side I have to move Nick to. Nick will have to duck. <laughs> there you go. And if you're listening, uh, it makes no sense at all. Yeah. If you're, the, watch if you're listening to the audio sometime. only. Well, sorry. actually, if, if you're watching this show in any form, it makes little sense. That's true. Good point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you weren't already um, confused, you're yeah. welcome. <laughs> Anything else, yeah. Steph? Um, no, the weekend was fun. Um, nice weather over, well, kind of nice weather over the weekend. I did a um, 5K trail run over at the Whitewater Center. It was their frigid 5K slash 10K and plunge. Mm. So at the end, you have the option to um, do something really dumb and jump into a pool, which I don't think is heated even when they're using it. Um mm. Because I think I've I've been in that pool in May before and found it quite chilly. Because it's um, kind of like a diving tank. It's they've they've built rock climbing walls over the edge of it, so you oh. can free climb the wall and then you just let go and drop into the Push pool. Push off and but drop in the, the walls water. are really high, so the pool is very deep. It's like sixteen and a half feet to twenty feet deep, I think. So lots of water, lots of volume, not very warm. Um, so I I jumped in and they said it was forty degrees, and I'm not sure I. 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Not sure I believe that um, it felt like ice cubes. Um, it was very cold. I think that 40 degree water does feel like, feel like ice, ice cubes. cubes. It felt I mean, like 60 degree. I used to go out in the Pacific and it was like 68 or something like that. And that felt like ice water to me. So, yeah. yeah 40, well, I've been in mid 50 degree water before and this felt much colder than that. Hmm. But fortunately, I was only in the water for probably three seconds oh. <laughs> as quickly as I got in. I swam and got right back out. Liz uh, has her little vacation in a beautiful cabin up there on the, mm. what's the name of the lake, Liz? Muldrew. Muldrew. Mm -hmm. And she gets up there and she swims in that water and that water's gotta be really cold. And did you say you actually swam in water that was covered with ice? No, that, the week after the ice went oh, out. Oh, the, the week after the ice broke, went out. Of the went lake. out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> I have lots of padding. Yeah. Lots and of so, oh, yeah. so the next morning I actually went back to the Whitewater Center, had a friend join me and we went ice skating because they have ice skating set up during the winter months. So that was pretty fun. Neat. Yeah. It was a good day for it. We didn't want to go like at crowded or busy times, even though they're limiting the amount of people that go out on the ice at once. Um, so we figured Super Bowl Sunday would not be terribly busy. And we lucked out because it kind of rained slash wintry precipitated overnight there's some sleet and snowflakes nothing that stuck but um mm -hmm. it made it nice and cold the next morning um and before the sun was really up and high in the sky it kept the the rink nice and firm shall we say but yeah definitely after sure. about an hour and a half the sun came up and uh, it started getting a little slushy because i think it was quite warm on sunday as well hmm. sounds like a lot of fun yeah it was fun it was a good weekend uh, Carl Columbus, Mississippi, Arnie, Arnie, uh, writes, uh, in the chat room, white duck, ta he, he looked it up, I guess <laughs> white duck taco shop originates from a nickname. The chef earned when she frequently got excited and talked too much to the kitchen staff. They called her La Pata Bianca, Blanca, excuse me, which means white duck. There you go. Hmm. So now we have uh, the official. I just Story. Don't understand why they called her White Duck because she talked too much. Yeah, come on, know. White Duck. White ducks talk too much. <laughs> really? That makes no sense to me. Either. Just, just go with it. Nick. Just yeah, just smile. Don't worry too much. And nod your head. It's a nice name for a taco shop. 
There we go. Now he's going to do a duck impression. Oh, no. <laughs> Liz says, oh, no, he's going to do a duck impression now. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay. My turn. Shut up. <laughs> uh, so, really, the highlight of the week was uh, last night getting uh, tacos and good beer and trivia and stuff like that with uh, Steph. Um, weekend uh, got to sing again. So, it was a nice weekend and uh, left on the uh, three day trip on Tuesday. And uh, today's Wednesday. And we're doing the show. (laughs) So here we are. And then I'm in, oh, I'm in Philadelphia. And then tomorrow, I'm sure we'll have to probably get a little de-icing in the morning. It's kind of chilly up here. And I don't know what the weather conditions are going to be like in the morning, but they're pretty good at it up here in Philadelphia. They've done it a time or two. And uh, we'll fly to Atlanta and then we're going to do a Norfolk, Virginia turnaround. And that will be it for this trip. Last night while we were at the uh, Legion Brewing, I got a text from Brent Heron. Uh, I talked about him last uh, last week. We were flying together. And he said, hey, Jeff, what? Uh, looks like the captain dropped out on my trip next week. And it's like very similar to the trip that we flew last week. Thought you might be interested in swapping whatever you're flying and for that. And I went, took a look at it. It's like identically the same trip that we flew uh, last week. And so I put in a swap for it and I got it. So I'll be with uh, Brent next week and maybe we'll get some more white duck tacos. And uh, as long as we can find a ride from somebody that owns a bright blue Jeep. (laughs) I think we can figure out. We can probably arrange that. Yeah. So Steph's driving Uber now. Oh, uh, Liz says that Steph is driving Uber now. Surge pricing will be in effect next week. I'm sorry to inform you. (laughs) I bet it will. (laughs) Okay. And that is, oh, uh, I had something else in my notes here. Um, Rick, you can talk about Rick. Oh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to talk about Rick. Uh, That was not in my notes. Uh, He was planning on being on today's show, but uh, he got held up um, some cargo um, trucks were supposed to arrive and, load up the uh, ULDs and load them on his jet and he was going to fly them. Where is he again? Wilmington, North Carolina, something like that. And uh, they were the truck or Wilmington, Ohio. That's right. That makes more sense. Um, And the trucks were running behind and he said, unfortunately it doesn't look like he's going to be able to make it on today's show. So uh, we, we do have Rick in spirit though. Uh, He, recorded something for us to help answer one of the pieces of feedback in the feedback segment. So you'll hear his wonderful voice uh, a little bit later, but uh, Rick, we miss you. Sorry. You couldn't make it. And hopefully you'll be with us next week. And real quick, Jeff, thank you for bringing the lost aviator coffee company stickers and swag. So my thanks to those guys. Appreciate it. Did you eat all the uh, Reese's uh, peanut butter cups? There's two left. Ooh. How was their coffee? Yeah. Oh, the coffee um, is good. I made um, both the – Liz was asking me how the coffee was. Um, the dark roast and the medium roast. Um, I forgot what their names are. Um, North Star. Constellation and, and North Star. Oh, Liz remembers. Uh, Constellation and North Star. And uh, they're both very good uh, blends. And I was telling um, Liz – I haven't done this yet, Liz, but I'm, I'm thinking about the perfect blend will be Jeff's blend, which will be – 
like a blend of those two together, I think mm. that would make a really nice uh, mad coffee cup scientist. Of yeah. So looking forward to that. And thank you again for um, sending that to us. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention when we were leaving the white taco, white duck taco shop, uh, I got a text from. Uh, is Greg with us today in the chat room? He was. He had to go. Oh, he had to leave. He, okay. Oh, well, he sent me a text. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, and I'm going to share this with everybody. Well, I'm not. I'll just tell you what he's he's texted me. He says, as far as I know, I guess he's listening to the last show where we talked about the uh, the guy that was one of the suspects for the D.B. Cooper mystery ah, yes. uh, that, that had just passed away. And he said, as far as I know, I am not related to Mr. Peterson that was suspected to be D.B. Cooper. <laughs> and I, sorry, I wrote back, sure. <laughs> yeah, we Likely believe, yeah. story. Yeah, because that's, that's why you have a stack of twenties. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I did notice that. Anytime I'm with Greg Peterson, he's always using twenty dollar bills and hiding in full sight, <laughs> uh, in full view, on a pretty big ass uh, would be a mm-hmm. perfect place to hide. I know. He always wear a pair. It's a good cover. God, yeah. d- you're right, Liz. He always seems to be wearing. I thought it was a backpack, but now that you mention it. But I think he does always wear a parachute everywhere he goes. <laughs> so fancy backpack you got there. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for me. Uh, my very simple, boring life. But I like it. So you going to talk about the coffee fund? Am I going to talk about the coffee fund? Absolutely. All righty. <laughs> okay. Now that you mentioned hey. it, <laughs> you know what? It's time for the coffee fund. Here. Let me see if I can find some kind of a sound clip to play that would have something to do with coffee, Java. Yeah, see if he can do that. That kind of thing. And oh, here, I think I may have found one. Yay. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. Oops, too high. I love tea. That's very funny. I, I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, that's the uh, Jeff Smith who uh, does the rendition of the Java Jive for us here at the APG. And the reason why we're talking about coffee and Java Jive and all that kind of stuff is because that's the way that you can support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so. And a couple different ways to do it. We have the Coffee Fund Classic method and Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. Um, and uh, this week, no activity in Patron land, Patreon land. Uh, that's okay. We've got a great group of folks over there, patrons that support the show. Uh, most of the financial support comes from our patrons at Patreon. Uh, but the other way to uh, support the show is using the Coffee Fund Classic method, which is a PayPal donation mechanism where you can make one-time donations or recurring donations. And since the last episode, we have a couple of fine folks that have contributed using the Ca- uh, Coffee Fund Classic method. We've got George Leslie, uh, Samantha, and or Sam, and um, Muhammad. Uh, Dan Cole and Bruce Tucky. Thank you guys and gals for using the coffee fund to contribute to our fine show. If you're interested in becoming part of this great group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too.
Incoming message. All right, we'll stop. Start. We'll stop. We'll start with Tony. And uh, Tony says, hi, guys. Hi, guys. Just to introduce myself, my name is Tony Conti. I'm 22 years old and currently living in Mallorca, Spain. How'd I do? Mallorca? Perfect. Right? Mallorca. Okay. I uh, just finished my uh, We PPL. say Mallorca, but... Uh, Mallorca? Yeah. We say New Yorka. Oh, New York. Okay. Yeah. You can um, say anything you want. Mallorca? I guess you can. What? Pardon? Mallorca, you say? Mallorca. What? I don't know. No. I've never heard what of that. Mallorca. Mallorca? Yorka? Mallorca? Sounds like a whale. <laughs> <laughs> Wheel <laughs> of a time in Mallorca. Okay. Um, anyway, this guy lives somewhere in Spain. Starts with an M. Just finished my PBL license, currently studying ATPL theory, hoping to fill in the right seat sometime in the future. I've been hooked on the podcast for a while now. Listen to it at home when I'm driving and uh, find it a great source of information and entertainment. My question is, when communicating with ATC in a foreign country, in your opinions, what is the hardest accent to understand uh, from what country? England. Um, I'd say uh, Spain for sure. And do you believe an accent? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And do you believe an accent can cause any safety hazards during critical phases of flight? Uh, the question arose due to the uh, the fact that as um, or no, we'll see. The question arose due to that as any other av geeks out there diving into YouTube in my free time, I found a video that I could hardly understand a French air traffic controller because of their heavy accent and wondered about any mistakes that could happen due to misinterpretation. Again, love the show. Keep them coming. Hope everyone is well. Thanks. And again, that's from Antonio C. Conte de Zusa. Uh, but he goes by Tony Conte or Conte. I do. That's like Mariba. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very Mexican to me. It does. Not so much Spanish. It just came out of my mouth. And I probably just offended. Also, something. if you're Spanish or Mexican and you are offended, please send your <laughs> yeah. comments to I'm offended at carolinepelica.com. equal opportunity offenders here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, so I guess, um, Nick, you probably would be the best to ask about this because – you probably have flown to more, you know, foreign destinations than any of us uh, as far as dealing with air traffic control and their accents. So what would you say is the hardest to understand? I think it's a bit unfair to pick out any particular country because it depends entirely on the individual air traffic controller. I mean, we have um, lovely Mohammed in, was in the chat room earlier from Iraq. And uh, he's going to send some, he sent some feedback, and we'll hear him speak later. And he's got an excellent accent, and he's very easy to understand. Uh, yet I've been to supposed English-speaking countries where some controllers, they speak unnecessarily fast and with a broad local accent that makes them almost unintelligible. So um, it, it's down to the individuals. Uh China is not a good place because uh, whilst they know standard phraseology pretty well, and uh, you know they they've done their homework, they they know how to speak. If you have a problem that's outside the box and you're just now speaking in plain English, explaining what you want, you'll often exceed their ability to both understand and reply. Japan is a similar 
problem. So fine within set phrases, uh, a big problem if you're now trying to uh, explain, say that you've got a disrupted passenger and um, you need to land, etc. So if you stick to standard phrases, you're usually fine. Um, and um, there are very few countries where the controllers uh, haven't made a really good effort. Uh, I mean, my first few trips over Russia were because Russia opened up to our company, um, you know, quite early on in their uh, the opening of their airspace. And uh, the controllers there really were stuck with very few, very limited English and very few phrases. Uh, but, you know, within a few months even, uh, their English had improved remarkably. And uh, uh, some of them, because they're often very quiet, um, sorry, they're not speaking very quietly, but there isn't a lot of air traffic sometimes. Uh, and you like often call entering their bit of airspace and you don't have to say anything till you're leaving. Uh, halfway through, you're the only piece uh, aircraft in their airspace. They would ask you if you had a few minutes and they would then uh, practice uh, English uh, with you, uh, which I thought was great. That was perfect yeah. way to... Uh, to improve your, your knowledge and uh, see if what you're saying is well understood. They would often ask us, uh, do you understand my accent? Is my English clear? And uh, you uh, you know, frequently we're terribly impressed with that because it shows a, a level of responsibility that uh, is you know very rewarding for a pilot to know that his controller is that interested in making sure he's easily understood. So uh, there are some... People that are very good, and obviously around the world, doesn't matter what country you're in, mm -hmm. there are some that are just horrible. I won't mention your New York specifically. Yeah, so that's you know that is <laughs> a, a good example of how sometimes local controllers or you know pilots here in the U.S. kind of make the assumption that everybody understands English perfectly. And uh, they use non-standard phraseology. And I mean, I, I get really uh, frustrated when I listen to some of those um, uh, ATC, uh, most especially in ground control at uh, JFK. And I'm thinking, I can barely understand what you're saying with your New York accent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do these foreign pilots, in, in many cases they don't, you know, understand what – is being said to them, they're using completely non-standard phraseology. And it can be pretty rapid fire too. And yeah, rapid fire, and then with that that New York City accent, sometimes it's just like wow, you know. It's I'm a sort of short tempered too. Right? Yeah, short tempered. Uh, those ads, uh, it's very common, very impatient, uh, expecting Which you to understand exactly what they said. Exactly, and kind for of. You it, to comply. It's exactly the opposite of what should be occurring if you have yeah. someone that you're talking to. Um, and you can tell that English is not their first language and you, everyone's expected to communicate in English, you might, mm -hmm. um, you know, still using standard phraseology, but just pick your words carefully and slow it down mm -hmm. a little bit and enunciate right. well. Enunciation, pace, mm -hmm. all that goes. And, and one of the nice things about aviation and use, if you're using standard radio phraseology is that even if somebody has a difficult to understand accent, you kind of know what they're trying to communicate to you at that point. So you can kind of, you know, if it were any other 
job field or whatever, you may not understand what they're saying, but because we understand aviation lingo and we know what they're probably going to want to say to us or ask us about, uh, you can, it's easier to decipher what they're saying to you, but it is kind of an intimidating thing. If you fly down, if you're not used to flying, uh, outside of the United States and then you're like flying down to Belize or, uh, you know, Yucatan, uh, Mexico, that kind of thing. And you're hearing some transmissions and the accents, not what you're used to hearing. And it can be kind of, um, you know, you, you kind of get a little, uh, intimidated a little bit or, uh, um, nervous about making sure that you're understanding them cor- correctly and that you're communicating with them uh, effectively. Uh, but uh, after a while, after you do it for a while, you know, you, it becomes old hat, right, Nick? Yeah, you, you get an ear for the accent and mm-hmm. then it becomes quite simple. But those first few trips to a new country can often be quite intimidating uh, and quite challenging because you're you're asking the guy to say it again because you haven't quite mm-hmm. understood it. He's generally going to repeat the same phrase because his limited vocabulary means that he can't rephrase it in a different way that you might pick up on, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is something that really annoys me. If you're an English speaker, someone can't understand it, and you haven't got the imagination to rephrase your question or your statement differently, then you're in the wrong damn job. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know what I found? If people are having a hard time understanding me, if I just talk really loud, <laughs> that always works. Louder and more aggressive. <laughs> it's volume yeah. interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Interpretation by volume. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And a little faster because now, yeah. now you're backed up. You've got to speak faster because you've got to get three more transmissions out. Uh, Steph, I don't know if it was the same for you. I know you've lived uh, in a lot of different places in yeah. the States. But when I moved from Southern California to uh, Mobile, Alabama mm-hmm. uh, back in 1972, um it was it was kind of tough sometimes to so understand, what, understand what they were saying. saying. I actually had yeah. a little bit of the reverse happen to me. So I oh. moved from Chicago to Utah, where the accent is, I would argue, is relatively neutral American. There's a few things that, you know, make it stand out just like anywhere. Um, Chicago. Well, the, the accent in Utah, I would say. Oh, Chicago, Utah. I think, oh, okay. is very distinctive. Um, yeah. um, and apparently I had a very... Uh, or at least a strong enough Chicago accent at the time that everyone immediately noticed it. Um, my first day of school in like seventh grade, um, I got asked to repeat words often, not so much because they couldn't understand me, but, but because they thought it was interesting or funny <laughs> how I would say it. it again. <laughs> hey, hey, Joe, like, come what? over here. Say Listen to this <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, uh, but yeah, moving to, I definitely had a few like patient encounters when I first moved to Eastern North Carolina. Where someone would say something to me, I'd go, I'm going to need you to say that again, because I have <laughs> no idea what you just said. <laughs> but I've gotten much better at understanding. Yeah, because after a while, yeah. hearing uh, different accents, uh, especially really thick Southern accents, you mm-hmm. you start picking up on it. Just as you know, uh, Nick's telling us about you know play, flying in certain places around the world, after a while, you start, your ear, your brain kind of adapts to it mm-hmm. and goes, okay, I, I, mm-hmm. I can understand now what they're communicating to me. Um, anyway, I'm just going to interrupt here, Jeff. There's Liz a is message here from Neil. Oh, Neil uh, says our our pay raise came through this week, so I've just changed up to the executive producer tier. 
least I can do for all the entertainment you all give. Well, thank you, oh, Neil. Thank you, Neil. Wow. Neil is a, a patron at Patreon. And uh, yeah, oh, well, that, that deserves. Um, That's very kind of you, Neil. A, uh, no, so on, much appreciate. Find the applause. Here we go. That um, means you and I can pay for our rent now, uh, yeah. Steph. Yes. <laughs> Actually, you can keep thing. the heat on longer at your house. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you wouldn't believe I've got like three duvets, uh, or you call them dunas, wrapped around oh, me here. Uh, like a blanket. What? I don't know what yeah. the second term was. That was a completely Duner. foreign one to me. What the heck are you talking duvet, about? Duna, yeah. Duvet. Duvet. Same blanket. thing, different country. <laughs> uh, Australia. Oh. They use, oh. have dunas, I think. I don't, they don't see any of this money. I just need to tell you. <laughs> We get thrown a few shekels. Everyone's like, like usually like bounces off our foreheads. It's like, ah. yeah. hey, it's a coffee yeah. fund. It's for it. It goes for the production coffee. of the show and meetups and, all, and, and my <laughs> and a lot of coffee and beer that I drink and uh, car payment here and there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh boy! All right. Well, thank you very much, Neil. That's uh, very much appreciated. We. Can't do it without y'all. Well, we probably could, but then we'd be very cold. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it wouldn't be as fun. No, it wouldn't be as fun. All right. Um, good. Um, let's see. I think we did justice to uh, Tony's question, I don't think you think? So. I think that I think maybe he was wondering if uh, we find it hard to understand Spanish accents, but I don't think so. No, so I've flown through uh, Spain uh, frequently, uh, and, mm-hmm. and quite honestly, if you uh, the, if your first transmission is a, a local um, phrase of a "hello, welcome," or whatever, uh, your controller is usually much more happy to uh, communicate with you. Um, it's Italy, uh, absolute classic. If you don't come in with the right "Hey, aroma control." Um, good day. This is Virgin. Blah 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 blah. You can drop it after the first few seconds. They mm-hmm. sometimes won't even reply. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't if you come on, and, yeah. If you come on and say, "Hey, uh, Rome Control. This is uh, Virgin." Blah blah blah. Um, you know, there'll be you know dead silence over the frequency. <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn your lesson yeah, next exactly. time? Say the right. Although, say it the right if you're, way. If you're, if you're, hey, local, if your local um, term of greeting is perhaps too good or too well practiced, you might just get the local language back too. So, oh yeah, careful. that's true. You oh yeah, that's there. right. Yeah, my father used to tell me of a, a first officer on the radio that used to always try and practice his uh, fake Indian accent when he oh, went no. into uh, oh, Bombay, and uh, the tower controller <laughs> said, "I want to see the pilot up in the." Control tower immediately, and when he arrives, he better be bloody Indian. <laughs> <laughs> or a bloodied Englishman, probably, more accurately. <laughs> well, actually, uh, apparently they dressed up one of their Indian cabin crew in the first officer's uniform, and he reported to the tower, <gasps> and they got away oh with it. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, man. They were God. serious? Yeah. Man. Wow. That's funny. Interesting. Moving right along. All right. Okay, Liz. She's snapping that whip. Um, number two, Seattle Nick. He's a new listener and he needs some career advice. He says, hello, airline pilot guy crew and community. I'm a new listener, first time feedback giver. You can call me Seattle Nick, Miami Rick's unknown third cousin-in-law. <laughs> 
All jokes aside, I just wanted to start off by thanking all of you for the amazing content you provide. I've been working at the post office and found your podcast, and it was such a blessing as it helped pass the time with interesting and funny content. Yes, I said funny. Thank you, Jeff, for your humor. Well, what about the rest of them? Yeah, we don't funny. have humor, apparently. <laughs> humor? Unfamiliar I had that, with that. I had that bone removed when I was a child. <laughs> uh, in my yeah, first is this week another list- mailman? Does he know Dave? Uh, he might. I don't yeah, know, I'm not so sure he's <laughs> unknown third cousin-in-law. He might be Dave's unknown yeah. third cousin-in-law. Yeah, exactly. Through work. Yeah, we do have a lot of postal yeah. workers that listen to the show. That is right. That is I think, true. Yeah. Um, let's see. In my first week of listening, I probably put away 20 or so podcasts because in being a mailman, you don't have to think much. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dave's a good example of that. It has become a staple for me, and I'm so happy. I Just kidding, Dave. Um, I'm so happy I have 400-plus episodes to still catch up on. Now to the meat and potatoes of my feedback. I've always had an interest in aviation, but never realized it was a career option until about three years ago when I went on my first flight to New York, where I played in Carnegie Hall in a national band contest. Ooh, I want to hear more about that. It, it was the rubber it. bands that they have that wraps the mail up. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Probably a thing. Uh, Carnegie Hall, though? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. since then, I've been in love with the idea of becoming a pilot, and re- I, I became in love with that, too. And recently have decided that's the path I'm going to take. I have been looking around at loads of different options as to what type of schools I could go to, universities, private, local, and etc. Would love the crew's input and advice. The school I've been most interested in is a fast-track 9-12 to month multi-engine option, which would also guarantee a flight instructor job at the same school afterwards to get my hours up. I've also thought about going through a university, but the fact that it is four years puts me off quite a bit. Not to mention the expense of it, right? I've talked to a few pilots on recent flights and I went on uh, who all said most legacy airlines, while not required, do recommend and prefer those with an aviation degree of some sort. And, uh, okay, I'll, we'll talk about this after I finish the whole thing. What are your recommendations on different school types in regards to the aviation industry making its hopeful comeback in the next few years? Should I skip a degree and become commercially viable within three years through a fast track school? Or should I do a university-type schooling, which will likely take around five and a half to six and six years to become commercially viable, but will net me a degree? Some of the fast-track options also have cadet programs with airlines, which I've heard to be a great way to move up to legacy airlines or at least be involved with regional airlines at an earlier stage. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thank you guys again for your input. And to Captain Nick, RAF, RAAF pilot, and missile launching extraordinaire, I am honored to share your name. Keep the brown side down. Have a nice behind breeze. Ooh, I like the those. And unlimited <laughs> visibility <laughs> to the closest bathroom and many other latrine-related <laughs> slogans. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Bathroom humor. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, that was uh, Seattle Nick. Um, I'll just say that. Uh, I mean, uh, we really haven't talked about this a lot since the pandemic struck Mm -hmm. and a lot of pilots have been uh, furloughed or or completely lost their jobs. So I'm not really quite sure, honestly, what the situation is everywhere in the world and even here in the States. I'm kind of 
And I'm not even sure anybody really knows for sure what what's no, going to happen. And it's, it's been very much a topic of debate amongst friends of mine and folks I know who are at various stages in their flying careers, from mm-hmm. those who are you know still looking to have their first um, uh, job with a regional airline, to those who are doing flight instructing, to those who are already in the door and um, you know not necessarily furloughed, but hours cut back and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to give advice. I mean, you know, I think we used to be able to be a little bit more confident in what we would mm-hmm. make recommendation-wise. Um, but I think at this point, it's just hard to to give a concrete recommendation for those questions that you've asked, Nick. Um, I'll let right. Jeff go ahead with what you were, sorry, cut you off there. I was just going to mention, you know, he had mentioned the fact, uh, or the, the, like a, an aviation university degree. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just going to say that the legacy airlines, uh, the people that you've been talking to are right. They aren't necessarily a requirement, but it's kind of, it's almost like one of those things that's an unofficial requirement or it's a, it's a something that you have achieved and you are being compared to the other pilot that has all the same ratings and same close to the same number of hours of experience and that kind of thing. But you have a university degree and they don't. And uh, a lot of um, legacy Airlines will prefer the um, and and Mitchell uh, Williams in the chat room is is making my point, which is that it doesn't have to be a degree at least here in the states. Now, again, I can't I can't talk for um, Europe and England and other parts of the world, but here in the states, as long as you have a a college degree, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, aviation related or not, or if it's science and engineering or whatever it could be um, whatever you're interested in you really yeah yeah i think that applies over here jeff Uh, it could be underwater basket weaving or a sociology degree which you can just get uh, from the toilet uh there was used to have above (laughs) more more bathroom if you have a sociology degree (laughs) they used used to have above the toilet roll holders sociology degrees please take one Okay. Um, yeah. So, but, and but, you could also make the argument too that if for some reason you can't um, continue flying as a career, if you lose a medical or you have something else that gets in the way of being a pilot, still you want something that you can use that you're still interested right. in. So, um, your plan don't get B. A, yeah, your plan B is always always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think no matter which route you go, whether you go to a university that has aviation bundled into it, or if you do. Uh, there's any number of ways to to get your hours. You can go through a fast track type program like you were talking about. Um, you know, the benefit being you get things done in a hurry. You can get into instructing if, if you're interested in doing that. Um, good way to get hours that way. Um, lots of different programs that do that. Um, lots of people just um, you know, do part um, 61. So you just um, work on it on your own time. You can work on your school on your own time. Um, once you get your commercial ticket there's all different kinds of things you can do to build hours as well it doesn't have to be instructing so um and we've talked a lot in the past about military routes as well which may or may not be something you're interested in but there's there's all kinds of avenues into becoming a commercial pilot yeah i think uh if we'd been talking about this with and the pandemic hadn't happened we would probably be saying that the demand for pilots were, was going to be so great that the need for a degree was much reduced. In other words, they would take, they'll start taking We were saying that, from, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but now the situation has reversed. So now I think you're going to be um, 
competing a lot more for a job with uh, people who have got quite good qualifications. So mm-hmm. it would be sensible, I think, to you know take your time, get a degree, uh, get your qualifications, uh, and by that time the situation might have eased itself out. Uh, yeah. And I don't know how much the money you have to invest into a um, a consolidated course nowadays is so vast. Be, yeah, it can be quite yeah, crazy. It, it might be better to just work your way more slowly through it, um, paying as you go rather than, you know, investing in a big loan or and a lot of money. Uh, again, Mitchell in our, our chat room was making that suggestion Um there it goes. Uh, learn to fly at your local flight school while continuing to deliver mail. You know, so you keep that income coming in, and you're kind of mm-hmm. building up that experience and your hours, and you know that kind of thing. And uh, um, I just want to make the point that I'm no expert. So, oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't think any are. of us are giving you concrete yeah. advice on this because yeah. just because yeah. there are so it's many just, variables right now, and it's too hard to say. And I mean, that's really how it is at any time, right? Like the aviation industry as a whole has gone through these cycles of, you know, um, difficult to get a job versus, you know, the, the pilot shortage that was the past few years and then right back around the other direction again. Um, you know, we've talked about kind of timing is everything, but if it's, you know, what you love to do and you want to do it, don't let any of that deter you. Definitely work towards it, but just make sure that you look into all of the available options because there might be things that you haven't thought of yet as well. And we pilots are guilty uh, and probably other fields of work as well of, of throwing out things like part 61 and part 141. Yeah. And honestly, for the longest time, uh, being a military pilot background, I didn't really understand what that meant either. Uh, part 61 is the kind of going to your local um, airport and finding a flight instructor yep. at a fixed base operation, FBO, and and just kind of doing the learning and lessons on your own time and when you have the money and that sort of thing. Whereas the part 141 are, this is all uh, CFR 14 aviation, the federal aviation regulations, basically part um, part 141 is a structured uh, school where you, know, you start and you go through and it's like a, a, a syllabus, a syllabus a and classes syllabus and, and, you know, yeah, certain points like you have milestones. You have to you're, you're like going to going to school yep. and, uh, and, and you have a program that you go through and expected to maintain, you know, hit certain performance criteria at a certain point, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and there, there are advantages and disadvantages to both of those sort Definitely. of uh, programs. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots. Yeah. I wish that we could like tell you for sure, this is what you do. And as Steph says, we had a lot more confidence in what we were telling people, uh, prior to the pandemic. And now yeah. it's like, I don't know. Yeah. It's if, crazy if we had a, the golden ticket to the best way to do it right now, we'd all be millionaires. Yeah. Although it would require a lot of work and we're too lazy. But, you know, maybe the flip side of the, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the flip side of the silver lining is that you do have time right now. Um, so take that time and use it to your advantage, especially if you have the, the financial means to do so in terms of working on a degree mm-hmm. and, and getting all those ratings. So, And a, a, a phrase that I, I coined, I made this up, uh, where there's a will, there's a way. You made that up? Yeah, that, I had that no idea. Did you get paid for that? Because <laughs> an Every awful time lot somebody of people it. have been using that. I, I would, I would start claiming copyright on that one. Well, I be should, a little yes. trademark uh, symbol to pop up yeah. every time you say that. Absolutely. DM. 
<laughs> All right. We've got about four minutes left, Jeff. We might just go to All right. the plane. Liz is telling me that we have, we're getting close to that time, the best part of the show, bar none. And that, of course, everybody knows, is the old pilot's plane tales. And this week's installment, as Nick mentioned uh, in, the, in the Getting to Know Us segment, is uh, part two of his uh, very well done uh, flying the red flag uh, plane tale of last week. And he says this is even better. So let's take a listen to this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Here we go. The old pilot's plane tales, flying the red flag, part two. In the first part of the Red Flag Tales, we talked about the reasons for the formation of the United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School and the subsequent creation of Exercise Red Flag. Now we get a chance to hear from some of the participants. Firstly, there is Nige, a long-in-the-tooth RAF nuclear attack Jaguar pilot who qualified as both a flying instructor on Hawks and subsequently as a weapons instructor, the RAF's equivalent of a fighter school graduate. So I can answer some of the simple questions, but the, the big caveat is, mate, I can't remember, because the date in my logbook of my last trip at Red Flag was uh, January the 27th, 1981. Then there is Gasha, who I thought was actually another Jaguar pilot. So, uh, Bruggen 31 on the Jag, yeah? No, Tornado. Oh, Tornado, okay. Oh, cool. The so which version? So that was a GR1 in those days. Oh, right, okay. Super. Who, as you can hear, actually flew Tornadoes in Germany and who has some of the funniest stories you'd ever want to hear. Jack was the USAF exchange pilot with me in Australia on the F-18, but earlier, he had flown the F-15C. Everything I did was the early 80s. Yeah, those four years is when I, you know, when I went to weapons school in the middle of all that. So I got to see Red Flag as a, a wingman, a new flight lead, mission commander, weapons school grad. I, I experienced it kind of all phase, all phase. Scott was an F-14 Rio in the A-plus and B model. So the ones with the upgraded engines and he flew in flag in the early 90s both on the red and blue sides before completing a long and distinguished career yeah so i retired from the navy uh may of last of 19 actually after 30 years last but not least we have abs who was a royal australian air force navigator so we had the f-111c which was a um which was custom built for the RAF. A very experienced operator, ABS flew in the flag as late as 06 uh, with the Australian F-111s. My first area of interest concerned the workup these guys did prior to participating in Red Flag. Well, the best bit was going up to Scotland and spending 12 trips working down to 100 foot and working up to uh, four fighter for mill and uh, drop in uh, concrete bomb, big concrete bombs and stuff. You, typically, the squadrons would do a workup prior to that. So that when we got to Red Flag, it was all about package integration and mechanics of actually executing um, with the aircraft were, were razor sharp at that point. Generally, as a nuke squadron, we 
qualified to drive. It's a bit like you and your air-to-air on the flag, actually. You'd, you'd, once a year, you qualify and do the stats and get everyone object. Um, f- so for the nuclear role, it was Singleton, go and drop a time bomb at night, and that was it. Whereas the attack side of our flying, which was all the stuff in a war scenario um, we had to do, was uh, a lot harder. You know, you didn't do four-ship nukes, for example, did you? Whereas we did four-ship conventional flights, and they were a lot harder. I mean, I ran a 12-ship once, and that, you know, that used every ounce (laughs) of brain and skill to get 12 Jaguars I was going to say, um, and, like, and that, it literally must have been like herding cats. Yeah, and, and obviously you did a workup. So bef- the months before that, we're at, uh, so we'd go to Lucas for a week or so doing 100 foot flying in Scotland. Scotland was harder flying than Red Flag because the ground was more undulating. Red flag being basically Arizona desert wasn't all dead flat, but there weren't many wadis to go down and certainly no granite hills that came up like this rather than up like this sort of thing. Yeah. So the Scottish flying, particularly getting down to a hundred foot from 250 foot, I was pretty comfortable at 250, even in Germany where it's flat, you know, by that stage, I was very comfortable at 250 feet, but we we went down in Scotland in stages down to a hundred foot, and it was it was difficult to fly at a constant hundred uh, at a constant. That's not the right word. Con- continual hundred foot in uh, Scotland because you did have to look out the front. So looking out the back, doing your tactics, um, and single ship stuff, doing a lot of low level awareness training. Well, actually, the navigation was harder, but we relied more on the INS and we didn't have bloody fancy GPS and shit. So Scotland was harder than red flag flying, but the, uh, having got pretty comfortable in Scotland and having, you know, four... Yeah, my last one was a four ship in Scotland with four F-15 bounces. And the day before that, I did a six ship at 100 foot with two F-15s and two Phantoms and then dropped a thousand pounder. They made a big thing is 100 foot's the absolute lowest. If you're happy at 200 feet, then you fly 200 feet. If you're happy at 150. So because you end up like this, you know, you've got to, you've got to do lookout. And if you can't look out at 100 feet, it's pointless you being there, isn't it? Sadly, not everyone on the squadron was able to get out to red flag. It was a highly fought after, and luckily some of the people that didn't... Um, didn't get picked up for the exercise, so I had to sit around and play a lot of uckers. Uckers being the adult version of Ludo, a common crew room game. On arrival at Red Flag, everyone was given the chance to fly around the area and spy out the local landmarks. You did a fam sortie, and I remember having a massive argument over that and being sent home to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, the well, my logbook says I did one red flag area for mill of one hour and ten minutes, and all the that's other when you flew into that. Area 51, presumably. <laughs> that's when you, we got the briefing on that. I probably got a whole day briefing on, yeah. You need to tell me just a little bit what that was like. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, well, actually, my, I'm an alien turned into a human. I well, flew I've out always, of there. <laughs> I've, always, I've always thought that, but I've never wanted to say it out loud. You've got this sector recce day. So go out into the area, and, and there's all these mountain ranges that you cross, and they'll be like caught. Courtside or Hawthorne. And the idea was you flew around. So when you heard an AWAC going, hey, Red Air 15s at Hawthorne, you knew where Hawthorne was. But oh, no, not you know, <laughs> rather, than go, rather than go around in pairs at 250 feet, this was full on eight ship OLF, operational low flying with weaponry. <laughs> and then recover back to uh, Nellis. One bloke's leading it. One bloke learns the recovery. Everyone else is just hanging in there. And I told him this, and he said, if you don't like my plan, go home. So I went home. <laughs> <laughs> As Nige has alluded to, slap bang in the middle of the ranges was the box, Area 51, an absolute no-go spot. But my memory of the box was um, one day we had planned we were going to ingress really low, you know, be out below the radars and try to sneak in and, and shoot some, some bad guys. And we got down low and to the point where we could hear the strike package. As we got lower, we could hear kind of a little bit of static and got down as low as we could and couldn't hear a thing. So we're thinking, okay, we're in the right spot. Heading along the eastern um, edge of the box and hearing some a little bit of communications above, but not all of it. Then all of a sudden there's a voice that's as clear as day. It's like the voice of God, aircraft's walking, one, two, three, four. You are approaching highly sensitive airspace, whatever it was they said. You know, we were never crossed the line, but they were very um, leery of what we were trying to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit too close for comfort. We had NAMWEST 1 then, and that's, and you'll know this because I've heard you mention it, suffered from Shula Loop. If you updated it at 20 minutes, you could guarantee that 20 minutes later you'd be lost again. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it's weird because on the recce day, we flew past it. And, of course, you look at your moving map and you look left and you can see these massive orange bollards like road cones, and you cannot fly past those. And that, and that the- happened. People led whole formations straight through it. I mean, if you flew into the box, you went home. Priority one was don't go in the box. Priority two was don't hit the ground. The absolute biggest threat was the box, Area 51, just to the south. That was, that's why it was the big U. You had that little secret area in the middle there where all kinds of stuff kind of flew around at times. Um, and day one, when you got your briefing, they looked at you and said, if you fly in the box, you will be escorted home. You will have a very secret classified briefing and you will be given a bus ticket back to your home base. <laughs> That's what Dickie Jones did. You need to talk to him. He went into Tonopah. So just as they were wheeling out the stealth jets, he got bagged up and put in a cell and everything he did. Before the start of the exercise, there was a mass briefing where the commander laid out the missions for the participants. I got thrown in the deep end. I got 48 hours notice of picking up a mission commander. Um, I got a tap on the shoulder by the FCI and said, this will be this will be great for your, uh, your development. And at the same time, my stomach dropped out at the bottom of flying suit, I think. Yeah, you just flew every day. So you had two teams. One would do a morning, one would do an afternoon. Typically, we'd get the frag the night before. And a red flag day would have two launches. They'd have a morning launch and an afternoon launch. So you'd get your frag the night before, maybe the afternoon launch, you get the frag that morning. 
so that the the air to ground commander and the air to air commander could get together and figure out what you're doing. But there were times the strike package could be 50 airplanes. This is a big picture. The bad guys are coming this way. You guys have got to go and do some of this shit here. You will have this sort of support and uh, you'll get your slot times, but basically it starts at midday sort of thing. And then you go and spend the whole morning getting your shit together. The main flow of red flag, it's like a giant upside down U out of Nellis. So the red force would take off and go west. The blue force would take off and go east. So you picture that big giant U over the top. And um, out on the east, you you do your tanking, you do your, you know, massing of the forces. And invariably, you made your press west towards the target ranges through Student Gap. And it was called that because it was a big line of mountains out there with a big gap in the middle of it. And they said, any stupid student can find that gap. So <laughs> the experience of being able to pull 300 aviators in over 100 aircraft together to do what was essentially a 10-minute TOT window was definitely a highlight of you know, my career. Briefed and prepped, it was time to walk out into the hot desert sun and start the jets for the big push. Getting airborne was the hardest because it was a bit like flying with New York air traffickers <laughs> <laughs> who didn't take kindly to all these foreigners coming in. So if your engine wouldn't bloody start and you had a take delay, you probably dropped out of the whole package. It's a huge airbase. So you taxied from these revetments out in the middle of nowhere well, they're in the middle of the desert for a start, and, but they had a, a bit of asphalt going to a runway that was miles away. So you died just trying to get your foreship, well, getting the engine started and getting your foreship or your eight ship together was the hardest bit. Now you just pressed on time and you dropped down to low level and, yeah, you'd have a, I mean, you know, 60, 70 aircraft package, probably, I don't know, massive. They had one dry lake bed out there, and actually A-10s operated out of there on the dry lake bed at times. They used it oh, really? Fort. Yeah, they made it like a Ford operating location. At the push point, you'd, you'd hear you know, all, the, all the calls from the, on the um, OCA channel as, uh, as they go out and mix it, and then you just hope that they wipe them clean and you can roll through relatively unopposed at that point. One push, I wanted to, I wanted to kill the EF-111 guys. We're out there in the tanker, and he, he turned on his stuff a little too early. And suddenly, we were blind. We're looking, everybody's looking at our radar. I mean, here you are at that time, you know, the most sophisticated air-to-air radar in the world. I say our big ABG-63, and we're all talking to each other going, well, what do you got? Nothing. And <laughs> we came back, and we landed, and right away, we got the Raytheon techs out there. And uh, we opened up the nose of the airplane, and every one of the boxes on the radar was latched. Those guys came <laughs> under our formation about 500 feet below us and turned their stuff on too early. It was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Once the fight was on, it was time to see if your training and tactics would prove successful. A little bit unfair. They would tie one hand behind your back and then say, okay, let's go fight. Like they wouldn't let us use the Phoenix, um, which is to be fair, that's not really indicative of any threat that they need to go up against. But uh, yeah, they tie our hands and, 
you'd be given a time on target, you'd be given a time yeah. to cross the flood and the fever and all that, and you were told there would be air support. Flot, forward line of own troops, FIBA, forward edge of the battle area. One of the things that the Americans couldn't quite wrap their head around is that we would hand fly down to 150 feet within the range over land and do that at up to Mark 1.6. Everyone was colour-coded because you didn't know who was number one and who was number four and who was number six. If blue said blue six, that meant that there was one in the second bloke back on the left-hand side's left corner. If somebody said black duck, that meant that black, you've got a fucking fighter coming up your ass from behind and you need to get down as low in the weeds as you can. And if it was red knicker, that meant that red threw a thousand pounder off at the fighters. You must remember Oh, I forgot tactic. about knickers. Yes, I do recall yeah. that tactic of yours. I think it was always a bit cowardly. Yeah, you well. Should, you should have died like men. <laughs> You can maneuver pretty freely. I mean, they had the blocks set where you knew where people were supposed to be, but you saw a guy that was doing something, hey, roll on in. It was, uh, once you got on the range, it was pretty, you know, go for it. <laughs> we go to the merge, and they figured they're in their 15s, they're just going to overpower us and go high. And um, we did the same thing, and they did not expect this. So I remember them saying, on their tactical frequency, oh, my God, they're going vertical. <laughs> so we end up in a nice vertical egg fight. And, uh, We'd have the Navy guys coming at us, Marines, other Air Force units, or just whoever happened to be out there. I mean, you flew your airplane to, you know, what it was. What was your success uh, rate against uh, Red Air? Because, I mean, obviously they're, oh, 100%. they're playing. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, pretty good. Pilot, Eighty-four kills for nothing. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting because they convinced us one day to run in this package, use the blue air ahead of us, and the, you know you got wild weasels and all. all I mean, massive package, probably eight thousand feet above the ground, and we were running in in this package. And the first sign of trouble, all these tornadoes just went <laughs> <laughs> down to the deck whole formation's got down on the deck boys. We kind of could hide down below, you know, the F-16s that were tooling along at 1,500 feet or whatever. You know, they were the, the easier targets, I suppose, above us. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll start off in the high 20s on our point, head south from there. And the A-10 guys look at each other like, I don't know if I get up to 27,000 feet. You know, I've, I've never been that high. I think my nose bleeds <laughs> above 10. So. <laughs> As soon as we got to the edge of the area, we were at 100 foot. The drive, it's just, he's got a hell of a job just keeping the thing going in the right direction and not tangling wings with anyone or, you know, hitting the, hitting the deck. Trying to recollect what happened. And I mean, this guy just spread himself along the side of a ridge line. And if, I mean, the giant knock it off comes and you're looking, I look over the side and I go, well, that doesn't look real special. No, but, no. Yeah. There's more of this story to come next week with Red Flag Part 3. <laughs> wow. It's fun to hear the... Uh, All the reminiscing uh, and the recollections. Obvious the- excitement in their voices recalling uh, yeah. this experience. Oh, you're quite right, Jeff. And it was... Um, <laughs> for me, uh, never having done a red flag, you know, I just was in the always in the wrong place at the wrong time, or 
You know, mm-hmm. the boss said, oh, I, I think I'll go. You stay home, look after the rest of the squadron or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. I never got out there. So living vicariously through uh, these guys telling me what it was like, I, I really actually, <laughs> I feel like I really missed out on uh, a fantastic exercise. But uh, I, I find found it fascinating um, listening to them talk about uh, the benefits of it. And uh, uh, I promise you, if you enjoyed this week, next week's even better. It's going to be fabulous. So um, I heard the term being used uh, by one or more of the people in the uh, interviews, a frag. Uh, what, what is that exactly, a frag? Well, it, it was never so, not a term I was familiar with, uh, but mm-hmm. I'm uh, pretty certain it, it, it might actually – relate to something i never even looked it up but it's basically uh your mission instructions uh yeah, so that's what i gather uh, from the context exactly so uh, <clears throat> you, you you get told where to go where to be what what your job is what time mm-hmm. to be there what stores to carry uh and th- th- it's all it's all in uh you know a document that you work to when you are at war and you have a mission to do what um also, I was going to ask you about uh, one of the gentlemen. No, I, I take that back. One of the fighter pilots. Yes, um, none of them are gentlemen. <laughs> Actually, uh, to be fair, uh, there's a very senior naval chap there. I think he might be a gentleman. And uh, but no, none of the others. <laughs> <laughs> That's like in the in the cockpit when a, a, a flight attendant comes up and says something about, "Would you gentlemen like anything?" And I kind of look around and go, "Who's she talking to?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, she's talking to us. Oh, okay. Um, the uh, it was talking about the uh, the radar on the ground. They they looked at the radar and they were all latched. I, I don't get that terminology. What does that mean? Well, uh, that's something that uh, Jack mentioned. Uh, he's F-15 Eagle driver. So uh, I suspect uh, what he was referring to were the modules within his very sophisticated radar that protected themselves uh, against um, a really strong incoming signal and they would uh, basically probably like a bit, a little bit like a circuit breaker. Uh, they would turn themselves off and go, uh, uh, no, rather than oh, take like all this energy. Yeah. Rather ah. than take all this uh, jamming energy, I'll just switch off. Uh, and you probably couldn't recover that in the air. You had to land ah. and, and have those latches reset. <laughs> so it was it probably is just a self-protection capability. So of, flying uh, around with like no radar. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Which I is mean, like, what's the, the whole point of the F-15 yeah. is that radar, right? <laughs> I know, but th- those F-111 Ravens were very powerful jammers. And of course, uh, you know, <laughs> If they're designed to work at long range, uh, and if you got if you, the guy fired up all that transmission at close range, it would just cook your uh, radar. So well, uh, yeah, I'm pretty I'm sure that's I'm, what he meant. Colonel Jeff, I wonder. I bet he's got some experience in uh, red flag of all those years he was flying that jet. Oh, I, I'm a, sure he has. Yeah. yeah. Um, for me, Jack was the perfect man to ask though, because uh, of yeah. course he'd done, as he mentioned, he'd done everything. Oh, I knew him. For a start, as, yeah, as yeah. I do, Jeff. But I'm but you Jack flew with and them. I uh, were neighbours, and uh, we mm-hmm. our kids grew up together in Australia oh, for, yeah. for several years. So, uh, and and of course, he had progressed from being a very junior wingman to actually going through the uh, fighter weapons school, and then participating subsequently in flag as well. So he 
he kind of he's got a huge gambit of uh, mm-hmm. you know huge breadth of experience. Cool. Well, that was exciting. Yeah. I, I I look forward to the next installment. I, and I must give my thanks to uh, Nigel, because we know Captain Nigel. Uh, he's already done Plain Tales for us, uh, the Forty Nine er series. Um, the Gasher, who was a captain with me on A three forties in uh, Virgin, who flew the Tornado Jack, I've mentioned, uh, was uh, an Eagle driver and flew with me in Australia. And then, uh, of course, we've got. Scott, who was a very kind, uh, one of our listeners, very kind of volunteer, a uh, Rio in the wonderful Tomcat airplane. What a fantastic piece of mm-hmm. kit that was. Uh, and Abs, who uh, uh, probably our most recent red flag um, participant in this plane tale. Uh, but the F-111, uh, we forget what a funnel. We we know just a navigator, don't we, who mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> flew in those <laughs> But uh, when you realise the capabilities of that aircraft, uh, and the Australians were flying it, uh, he flew it out in uh, Red Flag in 06. So that's not that long ago. Mm. And uh, they were still flying it. And an aeroplane that would just cruise along at 150 feet and doing Mach 1.6. That's <laughs> the amazing. I mean, it just plays my mind. It's brilliant, isn't it? That airplane was old when I was in the Air Force in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I seem to remember that uh, the uh, Americans, uh, the American government wanted to buy them back at one point because they hmm. saw a need to use these airframes. I don't know. I, there weren't that many airframes, so it must have been mm-hmm. a very niche use. But the Aussies said, "No, thank you very much. We, no, we're we like we love them. <laughs> we like these. But th- they were they were back in the days when inertial navigation systems were mechanical and the size of a suitcase. Uh, so you know they, they were old school aeroplanes, but great. And of course, the, the Aussies used to do that fantastic trick of dumping fuel and setting light to it and torch mm-hmm. these." 50 feet of flame behind the aircraft uh, for air displays, something uh, you guys gave up many years prior. Because yeah, it's too dangerous. Airplanes kept blowing <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just wanted to make this display, but we torched the airplane too. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You can tell I'm enthusiastic about these these two plaintiffs. They really uh, have been great fun for me to produce. Now, mm-hmm. did Nigel give uh, his um, permission to call him long in the tooth? <laughs> <laughs> Nope. <laughs> nope. Nige, I'm sorry. I had nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> no, I haven't, got, I haven't got too much uh, blowback from that yet. HR doesn't <laughs> regulate they heard it yet. plane tails either. So What's that? No, I said Sorry. HR doesn't regulate plane tails either, so oh, yeah. I have no jurisdiction. Completely no, I have yeah. my own HR staff for plane oh, tails. Fair enough. <laughs> they're, okay. they're all on holiday most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a lot of work for you there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no. mm. All right. Yeah. Really, really nice. Thank you. Uh, a lot of hard Nick, work putting all that together. Oh, no. I sh- nothing to do with me. Yeah. Thanks to the guys. I know it, it was brilliant. <laughs> no, it must have been a nightmare. Um, Appreciate okay. it. Thanks. Well, mm-hmm. uh, as usual, we don't have a lot of time, and there's no way we're going to be able to get in all of this feedback. Uh, but we're going to try to do as much as we can. Let's, let's move over to uh, four uh, from Ken. And he says, uh, the flight from, well, one of those days. I'm sure all of you have had those flights where if you had known ahead of time, you would have simply stayed home. Well, last fall was one of those flights. I'll try to keep the story short and sweet. My wife 
Elisa, Elisa, Eliza, maybe? What do you think, Steph? Eliza? E-L-I-S-A? And I were, yeah. Okay, Eliza. And I were headed to Bainbridge, mm, Georgia Eliza. from Louisville, That's the way Kentucky. I would have said it, but. Uh, K-L-O-U to B-K-B-G-E. The weather looked great. VFR the entire flight with no storms predicted. And even a nice tailwind in the winds aloft forecast. We took off with a big smile on our faces, as we always do when airborne. It simply never gets old, especially the thrill of leaving the Earth's surface. We flew uneventfully until reaching Rome, Georgia, KRMG. Stopped for fuel fill-up and comfort break. Ah, oh yeah, Delta P. I again checked the weather and noticed a little buildup south of Atlanta, but nothing at all concerning, or at least I thought. We again took off and again grinned from ear to ear. We were delayed getting fuel for about 45 minutes. A fuel truck broken, pump credit card reader had to be reset. We finally got airborne, and we, as we left the Atlanta area, the controller came on and informed me that a squall line had developed about 30 miles south of my location, and it stretched for 30 miles or so. I chose to divert toward Alabama to get around the pop-up system, and as the storm was traveling due east, this was a very good choice. We headed toward Gadsden, a Kilo Gulf Alpha Delta, it's in northern Alabama, intending to fly there and then turn south for Bainbridge. As we got closer, the weather system was more developed than expected, so we had to fly further west and eventually cleared the nasty stuff with an 85 miles diversion in 35 knot headwinds. We're getting tired, but we're still excited because it still beats driving. <laughs> we were with flight following the entire way, and as we approached K. Charlie Mike Delta, the controller informed us that there were parachutists airborne and dropping in 10 minutes. I quickly pulled up the supplement, found that the typical landing area was well north of the runway. The controller assured me that this area is used for military jumpers, and today's crew were very well trained. He had me stay on his frequency, however, because of traffic in the area besides the jump plane. I queried him several times to switch to Unicom as I was getting very close to the airport and had not reported in. About seven miles out, he finally let me know that the traffic had cleared and was no factor. I quickly switched over and announced my position. I attempted to talk to the jump plane pilot to no avail. As I set up for the landing, my wife looked up and said, What's that? I looked up and... Lo and behold, two C-130 transport planes were flying very low and directly in line with my runway heading. I quickly diverted to the right, doing a large circle, and allowed them to pass, taking every chance to ogle at those beautiful planes, but a bit miffed that they had not announced position and wondered why they were flying so low in a parachute training area and right down runway heading. By now, I was certain that the jumpers had been released. The controller had told me that they were jumping from 10,000 feet. And again, uh, try, I tried to reach the pilot on CTAF. No answer whatsoever. So I lined up for round two of landing. A song comes to mind. Hmm. As we settled in for a smooth landing without C-130s, I reached and called in about two miles out. And everything looked good. About one mile out, I'm focused on landing and get about 75 feet from the threshold when my wife again says, what is that? Well, at this point, I did not want to hear that again. I quickly look up to my two o'clock and catch a glimpse of several black dots growing larger and larger, faster and faster. I look back down the runway as I'm really close to touchdown and drum roll. Lo and behold, a parachuter had drifted right into my runway path. He saw me, and I could have sworn I saw the deer in the headlights look in his eyes. 
My back wheels had just made contact, and luckily he was on the far end of the runway. I gunned the 177B's 180-horsepower engine, pulled flaps to 10%. They were at 20% for the landing. Looking back, I should have left the flaps alone and climbed, climbed, climbed. The plane tried to touch down fully, but as I had full throttled the engine, the thrust lifted me off the runway just enough to clear the runway about halfway down its length. And by the time I reached the parachuter, he had run clear of the runway with part of his chute on the edge of the strip. I felt the plane's left wing attempt to stall, nosed the plane over quickly, picked up speed, and barely cleared the tree line at the far end. It took a bit for my heart to leave my throat, but I regained my composure, flew a long pattern, and dared to attempt round three. Thankfully, round three resulted in a successful landing. We parked the plane and exited for a much-needed walk, bathroom break, and head-clearing rest period. I attempted to find the pilot of the drop plane to find out why he was uh, Nordo, but by the time I arrived, he had already hangered the plane and left the airport. In retrospect, I learned many valuable lessons and still wonder if perhaps Dr. Steph has ever seen or heard of anything remotely like my scenario. I would also love to know if Captain Jeff could explain very low C-130s, not on CTAF, and flying right down a local airport's runway heading. Thanks for reading, and to everyone, favorable tailwinds, smooth skies, and no flying, low-flying transports or parachutes drifting into your runways. Be safe out there, everyone. And he that's Ken, Ken Sellers. He says, P.S. We had a calm and very uneventful flight to Bainbridge and a very good flight the following weekend back to Louisville. We still remember our unscheduled dinner with Captain Jeff at the Mexican restaurant in Louisville several years ago. Hope to meet up again sometime soon. Ken. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, I remember that, too. It was a lot of fun meeting you and your wife uh, at the airport. And then we met up again at the little Mexican restaurant right across the street from the Ken's hotel. in the chat room. Oh, Ken's here in the chat room. Obviously. His, oh, that's not his wife's name that's is awesome. Elisa, with Very a long good. e at the beginning. Uh, like long Lisa. e at the beginning. Lisa, Elisa. Okay. Uh, sorry, we screwed up your wife's name. Um, and I just half an hour left, Jeff. Okay. Um, okay. So, Steph, mm. is this what what happened? I, I'm not, I am not certain sure what happened here. To be honest, here. Ken, um, definitely. Uh, 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 thank you for sharing the story. First of all, that's, you know, there's a lot of things to, to think about a lot of things going on there. Um, interestingly, um, so it will happen sometimes where, um, uh, depending on, so uh, the drop zone I fly at, um, you know, it's away from the city. Um, oftentimes folks are just on local CTAF frequencies. Sometimes they don't manage to change over to the appropriate CTAF frequency and it can be hard to get in touch with other aircraft that are flying around. Typically we know that they're there, air traffic control alerts us to their presence and we can do what we need to do to keep our jumpers safe so that we're not dropping them if there's traffic um, in the way that might be dangerous. So um, although sometimes people uh, just out for Pleasure flights do interesting things. They'll be tracking one direction forever, forever, forever. And then all of a sudden, after you think they're clear of where you're going, head back the other direction for no apparent rhyme or reason. Um, so, yeah, you just have to be, you know, aware of your situation, aware of what's going on all the time. Here, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know why you couldn't um, get in touch with the either of those pilots um, on the radio. Remind us again what CTAF stands for. I'm sorry. Um, the Common Traffic Advisory Frequency. Advisory frequency mm -hmm. like you're supposed to use that to advise yes other airplanes out there what you're doing and yes ah yeah. apparently 
this guy didn't think it was important to do that. I don't get that. No, but there can be a lot going on too for that jump pilot, um, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, right in that moment, they may not have heard you. They may have been talking to um, a controller on a different frequency to coordinate mm-hmm. dropping um, jumpers if there was airspace involved. Um, they may have switched over right at that moment and you missed them. They missed you. That can happen. Um, so so I'm not sure. There, there's reasons why that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a very... Nice new feature on ForeFlight now for all of you general aviation pilots out there where um, airports that have frequent parachute activities have a now have a dotted yellow ring around them. So if you're planning a flight and you notice that and you're not sure what it is, um, that's that's what that is. So um, you may not want to fly directly over top that airport. Um, plan your flight a little bit differently. Um, what else? Have I ever had a situation like that? Not like that necessarily. Um, I'm a little... Um, Unsure, and Ken's in the, the chat room, so maybe he can answer this. If they were, um, they were military jumpers, so if they were flying um, round canopies or uh, like rectangular ram air canopies, um, that may have had something to do with their ability to control their, um, to some greater extent, where they were going to land. Um, they could have had a bad so spot. A little control or a lot of control, right? Probably. I'm sorry? I, I'm thinking if they had the round shoots, you have very little. Mm-hmm. Control Very of little. where you're yeah. going. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And if for some reason their spot was poor, you know, they got out in a uh, uh, location that was not ideal, round canopy. Okay, so round canopy, they're not going to have nearly the amount of control to um, determine where they're going to land. So they're definitely, um, depending on that spot, to be accurate and um, have all of those winds. They sound like balloon pilots. What, the jumpers? <laughs> oh, no. Or the... <laughs> Those round canopy guys sound like balloon pilots. <laughs> in a yeah. way. Yeah. In I a could, way. Can see in that. Yeah. Um, oh, he's always stirring the pot, isn't he? Yeah. Always. Always. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a lot of things here and a lot of good things for um, general aviation pilots to kind of take away from this. Um, you know, if, if, you know, there's jump activity occurring in the area, you could always go back to the controller you've been talking to, find out if they know if the jumpers had been... Um, released yet or not um if you knew that they were for certain that they were in the air um you could always give them a few extra minutes before you come in for your pattern and landing um it's just uh yeah i'm, I'm not sure so i don't know yeah. john jester's wondering if the c-130s were the planes dropping the parachutes i'm not i don't think that they That's landed what I there kind though. Of gathered from yeah I, I guess that was not no, the case. i i reckon they were just lost um, <laughs> it could be Air Force seriously, guys. Seriously, as uh, yeah, um, having done plenty of military flying, uh, it's very oh, easy to uh, oh. misplace your position by a couple of miles and fly through an active airfield. Done it many times myself by accident, but uh, hmm. uh, and they've got professional navigators who are the worst people to give the job <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> if you're a navigator and you're offended, oh, Jim, please send your feedback. Jim Howard, uh, Mike Dell, yeah. Our apologies. You know, we say it yeah. all the time. Yeah. We're sorry. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I guess I made those the couple of C- C-130s not on CTAF, not able to talk to the pilot of the jump airplane on CTAF. Um, yeah. I guess I, I'm a, I apologize for conflating the the C-130s with the parachute jumper, jumpers. So, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. I thought that they were part of the same thing, but I guess not, according to Ken. Yeah. yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Interesting story. I'm glad you glad you shared that. I'm glad that everything turned out 
well that day for for all involved because mm-hmm. um, obviously a lot of things happening all at once and good decision making um, once you recognize the situation in terms of being able to keep everyone safe and get out of those situations. Yeah. Hmm. Excellent. Ken, I'm glad you're here with us in the live audience to hear us read your feedback. And again, Excuse me. a lot of questions we have about it as well. I'm not really sure we answered anything. He said they were, the C-130s were flying 2,000 feet above ground level, um, uh-huh. directly down the runway heading. Hmm. Um, and actually, uh, you know, uh, over the runway. Do you have runway, a control zone over your um, airfields in the United States? And how high does it go up to? I think up to 3,000, right? Hmm? Okay. To the like the class, um, no, class E, seven hundred feet or twelve hundred feet, depending on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they but, may have been up. They may have been above the uh, altitude that they would have required to um, check in. Yeah. Just thinking, you know. Yeah. yeah they could have been on a completely different. Thing. They could have. Yeah, like I said, it happens not uncommonly, and especially the part of the country where I'm in. There's. <coughs> Excuse me. A bunch of yahoos out there. No, there's a lot of air. There's a lot of airfields in close proximity to one another, so it's very oh. easy to end up over an airport and you didn't even realize that you're. If you're just out, mm-hmm. I mean, you should be doing your flight planning. You should know where you're going. You should know the CTAF frequencies. Um. Oh, sorry. My phone started ringing. It was coming through my headphones because it was attached to my computer. Um, I don't know. I think the 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 folks down in. <laughs> Are uh, kind of crazy folk. Yes, we are. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm sorry. There, though. Didn't mean to play that so loud. No. I have the wrong fader. What was, up. I, what was I saying just before that? Saying something. Um, oh, there's a lot of aircraft or a lot of um, airfields in close proximity to one another. And if you're not paying close enough attention, um, it's very easy to be on the wrong CTAF frequency. All righty. Well, thanks, Steph, for answering that. And. Let's jump. You know, seven. Yeah, I, I hear you, Liz. Okay. But what about five? Uh, that, that's an important one as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I just wanted to make sure we got seven, and then we we're going to get them both in. Five. I promise. Okay. All right. All right. Um, but let's do that. Seven. We're, we're going to jump to seven. And this is from Darren. He says, "Hi guys. Right before United retired their seven forty seven fleet, I flew a one to Heathrow and noticed." The landing spoilers did not deploy at all on touchdown or deceleration. Today, I happened to come across another YouTube video, also of a United Airlines 747-400, and the same thing happened where no spoilers deployed. In both instances, the landings were absolutely perfect. On my flight, it was without question the smoothest landing I've ever experienced. Why would the crew not arm the spoilers? Does the super smooth landing have anything to do with it? Maybe a mechanical failure? A bunch of clowns in the comments section were accusing the crew of simply forgetting, which I find impossible to believe, especially since I've now witnessed this twice on the same airline. Oh, they're bloody 747 polish. What do you expect? (laughs) Knowing airline pilots, as Nick and I do, (laughs) and Steph too, um, (laughs) I, I find it. Really not that hard to believe that somebody forgot to arm the spoiler. But let's hear what Miami Rick has to say about this. I had, when we found out he wasn't going to be on the show today, he took the time to record this for us. So take it away, Rick. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Miami Rick live from the road. Um, 
Sorry I missed out on uh, being on with you guys and gals today, but um, I picked up an overtime trip, and I thought I'd be back to the hotel uh, before the uh, uh, show started, but uh, uh, there are some uh, supply chain issues, and some freight is uh, late coming to the airport, and so, uh, yeah, got to wait for those trucks, and, um, you know, people need their primary stuff, so, uh, anyway, I... Um, I wanted to touch on uh, Darren's uh, feedback regarding the uh, 747 uh, landing spoilers. And Darren says, uh, hi, guys. Right before United retired their 747 fleet, I flew on the 1-2 Heathrow and noticed uh, the landing spoilers did not deploy at all on touchdown or deceleration. Uh, today, I happened to come across another YouTube video also of a United Airlines 744. And the same thing happened where no spoilers deployed. In both instances, the landings were absolutely perfect. Uh, on my flight, it was without question the smoothest landing I've ever experienced. Why would the crew not arm the spoilers? Does the super smooth landing have anything to do with it? Maybe a mechanical failure. It goes on to say a, uh, a bunch of clowns in the comments section uh, were accusing the crew of simply forgetting, which I find impossible to believe, especially since I've now witnessed this twice on the same airline and airplane, uh, Darren Nolan. Oh, thank you, Darren, for your feedback. Um, well, so for for me to uh, answer this, I need to you know, kind of go a little bit into how the uh, spoiler system works on the 747 and uh, the uh, different ways of deploying the ground spoilers uh, up on landing. So uh, uh, the first one is just by, you know, up on touchdown manually. Uh, extending the speed brakes. So just after touchdown, you grab the speed brake handle and, and move it aft, and that will deploy the uh, ground spoiler. So that's usually what we'll do when the auto speed brake function is inoperative, uh, which, you know, you can fly with the auto speed brake uh, function inoperative. You just have to deploy manually. And obviously, uh, there's, there's uh, performance calculations uh, that go with that because you need to account for manual deployment versus uh, automatic deployment. Um, the second way, which is the way that uh, uh, that we do it most of the time, uh, per the checklist and uh, per standard operating procedure, is to put the speed brake uh, lever on the armed detent. So you pull the speed brake lever up and you move it aft to a little detent that says armed. Right. So basically, what that does is Upon touchdown, um, the speed burst will deploy automatically. And for that to happen, uh, three conditions need to be uh, satisfied. Uh, the first one is uh, main gear uh, wheel spin up. Uh, the second one is uh, strut compression. And the reason why you need strut compression is because on the strut, there's going to be a switch. It's called a weight on wheels or squat switch. And this switch is uh, uh, very important to uh, certain systems because it tells uh, the airplane whether it's in flight or on the ground. There are systems that only work on the ground and systems that only work in flight. So this is the way these systems have of knowing whether the plane is flying or on the ground. So the second one struck compression. And then the third condition that needs to be satisfied for automatic speed brake extension is you need to have the thrust levers for engine either for uh, engine one or engine three at idle. Uh, now, uh, inside the thrust lever quadrant, 
there are what are called um, uh, thrust lever angle transducers, which translate the angle of the of the uh, of the um, uh, thrust lever itself um, to various systems as well. And one of them is the speed brake controller. So a thrust lever one or three at idle, uh, struck compression, and wheel spin up. That'll cause the speed brake lever to deploy automatically and the spoilers to deploy automatically if the speed brake handles in the arm detent. And then the third way you can deploy the speed brakes up on landing is if uh, it goes like this. If you forget to put the speed brake uh, lever in the arm detent and you land, um, you still need wheel spin-up, you still need strut compression, uh, and you still need thrust lever one or three at idle. Uh, but uh, instead of putting the speed brake lever in the arm detent, you can deploy the thrust reversers for engines either two or four, and that'll cause the speed brake lever to uh, move to up and uh, deploy the ground spoilers. Um, so the fact that the aircraft landed, and I think I know the the, the video you're talking about. I, I think I've seen it too. The one the one you referred to is a uh, is a landing in uh, Sydney, I believe. Uh, now the the vantage point or the camera, the guy that's uh, or gal that's that's taking the, uh, the the video at the window, I think it's the left side of the airplane. It's kind of seated behind the left wing, so I can't see what the engine's doing as far as whether the, the thrust reverser was selected or not. Um, but if the speed brake lever was not armed, and if the uh, if thrust reverser was not selected, then it's clear to me that the speed brake lever was in the down position the whole time. Uh, I do see at the very, very end that the speed brakes do deploy, uh, and that could have been because they either selected idle reverse thrust or whoever was up there decided at the very end to move the speed brake lever aft. Uh, I'm not casting aspersions. I'm not, you know, pointing fingers or anything, but based on how the system works, uh, it's clear to me that it was indeed not armed. And they may have missed it uh, on the checklist because it's the. Uh, I mean, I've got the got the landing checklist on the 747 memorized. So it's uh, you know, speed brake lever armed, landing gear down, and then whatever your flap setting is, uh, landing flap setting is. Um, so it's just three items, uh, and one of those uh, three wasn't uh, wasn't completed. So uh, that's just uh, my two cents there. All right, uh, that's it. I hope uh, you enjoyed the this little explanation and I look forward to uh, hanging out with you again uh, on the next episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. Take care and see you next time. Bye. Yeah, again, Rick, so sorry you weren't able to make it uh, today. We were looking forward to that. And now, you know, I gave that one to Rick because, you know, he did fly the 747. I think I could have answered it much more <laughs> accurately and um, with much more detail than that. But you know, you got to throw a bone to an occasion. <laughs> how many, how many was, tangents would be involved to get to that length yeah, of explanation? Just to give he the He did a listeners. pretty good job. I don't think he was very tangential at all. No, he was no, not. Just I was give the listeners him. I was a feeling for oh, that. Me? 
<laughs> he uh, he we we dropped that on him with like five seconds notice, <laughs> and know. in between doing all his other duties, he just rattled that off the top of his mm -hmm. head. So yeah, um, he didn't have time to look any of that nope, up. <laughs> absolutely, he knows all that stuff. It's all stored away in. His little micro microchip he's got in, <laughs> yep, installed in his head. Very well done, Rick. Good job. Yeah, very good. Astounding, very good. just the level of knowledge. And when he said he has the 747 checklist memorized, he's not kidding. <laughs> he really does. He's got the whole uh, F. The Coleman whole, operating yeah. manual memorized. <laughs> I think he does. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Look forward to having you back with us next week, uh, Rick, hopefully. All right, let's quickly uh, go on to this. Uh, we've talked about Muhammad um, uh, from Iraq, uh, Baghdad, and uh, Sam, the uh, online English tutor. And, uh, and pilot. Let's see, and pilot, yes. Um, primarily, but right now I think she's furloughed. Um, yeah. So uh, let's see. I, we have um, – just start with the – with the audio feed, uh, let me yeah. read this. Okay. Let, yeah, let me read okay. this first. I think we got this in first from Sam, right? Uh, right, Liz? we did. You're okay. correct. Hi, Liz, Jeff, and crew. Apologies. Notice the order of that right there, right? The one that has the highest priority is Liz, Jeff, and crew. Oh, shoot. That's me. I thought that was, <laughs> that was your phone in the background, Liz. I'm so used to hearing that. Um, but no, that was my phone. Sorry. Um, okay. Hi, Liz, Jeff, and crew. Apologies for the combined email, but I wanted to ensure Jeff was in the loop as he tends to read out the coffee fund. Thank yous. This is Sam, the online English tutor who wrote in to offer tutoring services for Muhammad, the trainee air traffic controller. For a reminder, see email chain below. Okay. Thank you once again for connecting us, and I'm pleased to report that Muhammad has now signed up for a block of lessons with me following a trial session last week. As a token of appreciation from us both, I have just sent a donation to the coffee fund. Although the payment comes from my PayPal account uh, or my PayPal account, I wanted to make it clear that the donation is from both Muhammad and myself. It just saves two transaction charges by sending one payment, which means more coffee for the crew and beer and stuff. Thanks again for all you do. And I hope in, in future, in the future that perhaps someone else listening to the podcast on a later date might reach out if they might also like some help with improving their English. I think she's trying to hint that I, maybe I should call her and get some help. Yeah, we were um, going to suggest it. Maybe a little. <laughs> I, I think yeah. the coffee fund would be a great source of payment for that service. <laughs> it would siphon everything we have. Please. <laughs> anyway, blue skies for the weekend, uh, Sam. Okay, so that was Sam. And then Muhammad uh, said, thank you for this nice opportunity with Samantha. I'm motivated with English language again. Let me tell you something. I was watching an Iraqi YouTuber, and this guy said, if you want to improve your English skills, listen to the podcasts that are related to your job. That's how I started to use podcasting for or podcasts for the first time. And that's how I found you guys. And the main reason is to listen to the English podcast and aviation is to, to develop my skill of speaking English fluently. When I found you, I liked the way of interacting with your audience that encouraged me to send you feedback. Also, the quality of your viewers during live chat, most of them are specialists, uh, people or people uh, that uh, love the fun of aviation. This is uh, a unique quality. I love it. I simply, I deeply love it. I'm, I'm in love with you, APG. <laughs> love that. <laughs> oh, 
that makes us blush. Yeah, yeah. Um, va- Valentine's. Valentine's yeah, is that's just right. coming up. So Sunday. Um, mm-hmm. It's a right? perfect time to fall in love with APG. Yes, it is. That should be a new sticker. I'm in love with <laughs> Show APG. <laughs> Show time. Oh, there anyway, goes. I sent you a separate email with an audio feedback. Okay, so uh, for uh, to thank you for connecting me with Samantha. Um, okay, so we're going to play that here in a second. I'm also listening to your old podcasts and Plain Tales on the website. Great efforts by Captain Nick. And thanks to him, uh, also his tone of telling stories is amazing. Uh, I wish you well, be safe, best regards, Mohammed in Iraq. And here is his audio feedback that he sent to us. And uh, yeah, here we go. Hello, APG. Hi, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Miami Rec. Hi, Liz. Uh, I would like to say thank you very much for connecting me with uh, Samantha. And I started uh, the sessions with her. And what I like about learning English with Samantha is in addition with learning English, I also uh, I am getting the pilot perspective in aviation. And that I think it will be very helpful in my role as an air traffic controller, uh, I would all I would all I would like to say thank you very much. And in future, I hope my my next feedbacks audio feedbacks will be with more improving advanced English. Uh, I wish you well, Mohammed from Iraq. Bye bye. Kind of hoping he'd said he'd say I love you. But he didn't. <laughs> well, I, I was I would have worried was... if he'd said it again, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, it, is, it, I I think his his English is already very easy I, to I'm understand, and I'm impressed too with yeah. the complexity of his vocabulary. You know, it's not yes, just yeah, and his pronunciation words. is really very clear and easy mm-hmm. to understand. So, congratulations, yes. Mohammed. Well done. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Great. Thanks for sending in that uh, audio. And we, we'll, we'll start it. We're, we're going to start critiquing everything uh, pretty soon, uh, Muhammad. And if we're not really tough. happy with your progress, then we're going to have to yeah, kind of, kind of bring you down a notch or so, you know, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> don't be no, mean. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just imagine all mean... of the critique we'll start getting on our English skills too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to start critiquing. Hey, this is a English two-way skills. street. You understand? <laughs> yeah. Sam's going to start sending in feedback, critiquing our English. Mm, it's not good. Yeah. Although has anybody heard Sam speak, you know, no. no. Oh, yeah, we yeah. could do with some voice feedback from Sam. Yeah, That'd be good. Let's let's hear this English expert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. I was going to do one more. Eight. Which one? Eight. Thank you. Yes, eight. The grounded pilot. APG syndrome stages. <laughs> okay. Uh, hello, APG crew. I've created a little guide of what I think the stages of the APG syndrome should be. Oftentimes, stage one and stage two can go undiagnosed, but can quickly escalate. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds nasty. Uh, That's a bit insidious, isn't it? Stage one, listen to a complete episode and begin to feel urges to listen to more. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Urges. Urges, yeah. But that's... (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I can see that could go undiagnosed. It's mm-hmm. not uncommon, I think. Stage two, you begin to follow every new show and may have gone back to a show when recommended by Dr. Steph. We all okay. like to do what Dr. Steph wants. Yes, we all yeah, do what yeah, I say, actually. Yeah, it feels like a safe thing to do, doesn't it, from it does. your doctor? Yeah. Right. Trust me. Yeah. I'm a pilot. I'm a doctor. Or a doctor. Or both. Stage three, you have given feedback in the form of an, of an email, voice, or live chat. Uh-oh. Yeah? Or okay. they could send video, too. Mm. Yeah, or video. Yeah, yeah. The, now you're starting to get into the serious realm of... Uh, APG syndrome. Getting hooked. And then stage four, you are the biggest fan listening. Yeah, that's <laughs> terminal right there. <laughs> the big uh, ass fan listening? That's what I was going to say. That's, that's Greg, isn't Poor it? Greg. Poor Greg. He's, oh, yeah. he's got the worst case of it. <laughs> uh, systems include listening to over 1,300 hours of APG. Oh, my God. Is that what it all adds up to? I don't you, know. Uh, if you're the in fact the that military, it took the time you'd, to figure that out, though, yes, you'd yeah. get a special arm patch for that if you were in the military. <laughs> you would. Uh, the purchase get a of, special shot. The purchase of merch or a subscription to the Coffee Fund on Patreon for access to those Ooh. sweet crew logs to read with your morning coffee uh-huh. or tea. I don't think we do any of that, actually. <laughs> we should. But we should. We should. It's a good False advertising. I should have done one last night. To be yeah. Sure. And, we, and yeah, I guess we could always just write some, too. Yeah, you could write. Of that. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, sincerely, the grounded pilot. And uh, Nick, do you have any uh, reply to that? Yeah. Well, I wrote to uh, grounded pilot because I, I obviously felt enormous amount of sympathy for his condition. <laughs> Uh, and I, I read after that fine piece of medical work, I've suggested that you are awarded an honorary aviation medical degree. Wow. From uh, the Newport Aircraft Company, um, Ground Asylum sponsor. Uh, yeah, we, he, that company does a lot of sponsoring of medical work, mm-hmm. which will allow you to use the post-nominals Av Med Nut after your name. Yours, Captain Nick. And uh, we've sent uh, a grounded pilot uh, his doctorate. Uh, uh, so it's a doctorate uh, of Mednut. Uh, the crew uh, convocation proclaims that grounded pilot is hereby awarded an honorary aviation medical degree from the Acme Newport University, Atlanta, GA. Forthwith, his pre- and post-nominals shall be Dr. Avmed Nutt. So that would be like, oh yeah, applause. I'm sorry, I had that already, and yeah, then I yeah, skipped over here to look at it. Hang on, hang on. All right, and, and underneath applause. is our sponsor, the Newport Aircraft Company. Yes, very popular um, manufacturer of modern airplanes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and because uh, if we if if you write Avmednut in full, it would be Aviation Medical Newport. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, gotcha. Understand. And then would you put like the the letters A M N? I, I suppose you could. It sounds like a bit like Amen, but uh, yeah, that works for me. <laughs> well, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> because if you've got, <laughs> you might need to if pray. You, yes, you might, need, so. might need prayers for yourself. If you've got the virus, then saying amen would probably be, you know, something you'd do quite often. Yeah. I mean, it just, amen just means it is so. Mm-hmm. Fair so enough. Nice. So I love nice. it. There you go. 
All right. Very good. So congratulations, Grounded Pilot, whoever you are. You noticed that I don't not sure that one of the symptoms of our stages is being completely anonymous. anonymous. Good uh, point. They're ashamed. Yes. They're ashamed uh, they're of being so looked. <laughs> You'll have ashamed to... of their affliction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like a leper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. They're going to a, a colony. Know, should, I'm sure call your true identity is one of the stages here at some point. So. Yeah. It might be. <laughs> we wouldn't want to call you leper pilot in future, would we? <laughs> Maybe accidentally we might refer to you that way. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. It's nice to get uh, some definitions for the various stages of of uh, the syndrome. Mm-hmm. So all I right. hope well, you're is- getting in all your daily doses of go around a cylin. Oh, that's tough. And, you know, I I still haven't crabs. really recovered from my <laughs> doses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that's kind of yeah. it's kind of tough. You definitely need to consult a um, qualified medical. Well, you um, definitely want to carry a bucket around with you. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's helpful as well. Oh my! Um, all right, so yeah, that's it. Uh, we're going to move all the unread feedback to the next episode. Uh, Liz is very happy. She's actually clapping in the background. I see that, <laughs> and uh, she's just filled with glee. Feedback glee. glee. Yeah, um, the Glee Club. Yeah, part of the she's the head of the Glee Club. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have a website, uh, airline pilot guy. I'm not going to go through all the stuff that you can find on there, but it's a lot of good stuff. Arash is our uh, website guru guy that uh, really maintains that for us, and we do appreciate that, Arash. So again, uh, airlinepilotguy.com, the website. If you want to send feedback to us, feedback at airline pilot guy. You can record stuff on your whatever device and attach it to an email or you can use speak pipe. That's what Mohammed did. He sent and it that's in. That's what uh, Mohammed did. Pipe. Yeah. And oh he used speak pipe. Okay. Awesome. He used speak pipe. Yeah. And uh, so all, all kinds of different ways to send us feedback and we really appreciate it. And that's a big part of our show. As you know, uh, unless you're like listening for the first time, uh, one of the things I think that uh, really sets our show apart is the fact that we really spend a lot of time on your feedback because this is not just the four, four or five of us, or the crew, the APG Cruise show. It's your show, the community show, and you know you steer it and you kind of help it evolve into what it is now. Yes, we're placing the blame squarely on your shoulders for what right. this has become. <laughs> become, um, become. Wow. Hope doesn't sound Samantha's going to get right on that. <laughs> Dang it. I hope she just listens to the audio only version of this, where I'm going to completely cut that out. Um, anyway, so yeah, check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, all the different ways to send us feedback. We're also on social media. And Steph is a social media maven. Maven. Go ahead, Steph. That's good vocabulary. They're making up for that. uh, (laughs) Whatever you said, becomed. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Anyway, if you are a fan of maybe short form um, interaction where you like to use abbreviations and incorrect spellings of words, uh, you can head over to twitter.com and we are there. We are at APG crew. All of our individual Twitter information is pinned to the top of that page. If you would like to find us individually, you can also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Join in um, the community there. Lots of good interaction and discussions going on. Uh, and you can also find us on Instagram where we're also APG crew. We are. And we're also on Slack. We have a Slack team led by the biggest slacker of them all Hillel and he um, it's amazing he he always Without seems fail. to be in the Hillel Hillel time for slack can, can you help us out 
Okay. Um, now, go. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel, and uh, I always appreciate it when you're able to yeah, tell us all got to try these towels. I will. Yeah, Marriott has really nice towels. Please don't use them all. Okay. Don't steal any. Yeah, or don't steal them because they'll blame me. Call housekeeping and get some more. Um, You're going to need them. Yeah. I already see the water seeping uh, into the room from the bathroom. That's that's a mess. Anyway, um, also a big round of applause for our producer director, Liz Piper in Toronto, Ontario. Great job with uh, the overlays, the pictures. Yes, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that you all cannot see, but she is just uh, on top of it all, and we do appreciate her so much, more than she'll ever know. And with that, it is now time for us to bid uh, you adieu and say thank you for listening, reviewing, and all that kind of stuff, and uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and favorable winds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, buddy. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly